The following program is intended for mature audiences. People of Earth, attention. People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. Look, I love Gary. He's fantastic. Good job you're doing, boy. What a good reputation. Thank you very much, Gary. You're listening to the Martian Revelation Strap Insight. Go to www.thefacesofmars.com. That's www.thefacesofmars.com. According to a new report in the New York Times, the U.S. government may have physical evidence of, and we're quoting, off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. Surely the days of the great Martian Revelation are upon us.
Which everyone knows is your defense for the war which we all fight against the evil dark mission is. We're all leading you away from the light and the truth and manipulating you all instead to help you open your wallets and your pocketbooks to only join their dark side in special clubs and special subscriptions that only allows them more power to continue to mislead you all and to steal you all away from the truth that they themselves not wish to face or even admit to. Hell, let alone even talk about. 
Yeah, UFO Diaries. Faces on Mars. Cover-up controversy. Down through time. Huge conspiracy. It is a conspiracy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But the Martian Revelation is, however, 100% listener-supported. With no special clubs or any special subscriptions to join. I believe in free speech. So if you're a listener, please help support the Martian Revelation show. Again, which is your only defense for that war, which we all fight against the evil dark mission is... And we're working with the goal each week to bring you the truth one show at a time. So please share the facesofmars.com link. And I must also ask you all, though, that you please donate to the show with anything that you could afford by clicking on the big red, white, and blue American Donate button while it still stands at the top of the show page to allow it to continue being here for you down through time, as it is because of you, the listener, of which makes the March and Revelation possible to be brought to you all back through time. So your listenership and your donation support actually counts. And it helps us all to not only fight, but to win against those evil dark missioners. (laughs) But the goal here is to secure a future which we all could literally make the Martian revelation our reality. By what you say? By making our fate. And just remember also that if you're listening to this Martian Revelation show, then know this, that you are the resistance down through time. Now, with that being said, we got a cool show for you all tonight. We're going to have a Mark D'Antonio on with us. Quite an extraordinary individual as we discuss the potentialities of life out there, as well as in our potentially in our solar system. But he loves looking at, at other worlds, at the wonders of life, and especially seeking for those signs and evidences of life, especially regards to UFOs. But that'll be later on. But I feel that there's news to get into, and there's a bunch. So I'm just going to try to narrow and tally it down like I normally do. But after the show tonight with tonight's guest, we're going to get into recent events of why revolution calling, despite to go in connection, obviously, with the news which we get into of the kind of revolution that we need to get into there. But uh, after the show with tonight's guest, we're going to get into a, a different revolution calling that is more spearheading to the reality of what we must take as a nation and a people, of we the people, against what's going on. It's threatening us all, and especially it threatens the Martian revelation that's upon us all now. Since this show's phasing back through time in 2018, I told you all, that we're on a new timeline, that things weren't going to go down as like the first time they did. And I told you many things were going to happen. People would be shocked at the type of things. But now we have to start getting into the realization that I'm not so crazy there as it may seem. And our future of this nation as well as our place in space and what space becomes for all of us as a free peoples, not just of America, but ultimately of the earth, is all at stake. So we're just going to talk a little bit about these recent happenings and goings-on. But until then, we should focus about what's going on now. The race is on. The race to Mars is underway. You got India's Hope Probe. That's on its way. You got America's Perseverance Forever rover on its way. And you got the Kami Chinese Mars mission on its way, which, again, I hope blows up before it gets there. ESA's, European Space Agency's Mars mission, the ExoMars rover Rosalind Franklin, 
did not get uh, start off when the firing gun fired for this race to Mars now. But they'll be launching later, which will still ultimately get them there. But this is the important factor. They didn't. They missed the starting gun. And this little race to Mars is going to end and begin just next month. And the politics is about this all has been pushed under the rug, just like everything else going on. It should be no fucking surprise there to play down the importance of what this is all about. And they put a spin on it, which makes it seem like everything is okay. This is all about science and knowledge and education. It's a lot about bullshit. But on the public face, that's what it's about. I released two days ago, there's seven things to know about the NASA rover about to land on Mars. Again, we're getting into the public spins of things, but it's reading between the lines where you people must figure out the importance of this and what it really implicates upon the bigger picture of what we're facing, pun intended. But with only about 50 million miles left to go in its 293 million mile journey, NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance Forever rover is nearing its new planetary home. The spacecraft has begun its approach to the red planet, and in 43 days on February 18th of 2021, Perseverance Forever will blaze through Mars' atmosphere at about 12,100 miles an hour, touching down gently on the surface about seven minutes later. The infamous seven minutes ahead. But we're looking on our last adjustments to put Perseverance forever in perfect position to land in one of the most interesting places on Mars, said Fernando Abeliria. If you say so, Deputy Munition at NASA's JPL in California. The team can't wait to put these wheels in some Martian dirt. Right. But built and managed by JPL for NASA, the Perseverance Forever will be joining another rover and lander currently at work on Mars with several orbiters in the skies above. And what sets this six-wheeled robot apart from the others? Well, one. Again, there's seven things. But one, Perseverance Forever is searching for signs of ancient life. But with, while the surface of Mars is a frozen desert today, remember, you know, when people hear deserts, they think of, you know, like the Sahara and Egypt, the desert, that's a desert. No, you could have a desert that's just rocks without sand. It means without water or lack of. Now, so again, while the surface of Mars is a frozen desert today, scientists have learned from previous NASA missions that the red planet once hosted running water and warmer environments at the surface that could have supported microbial life. We want Perseverance forever to help us answer the next logical question. Are there actually signs of past microbial life on Mars? Said Katie Stack Morgan. Deputy Project Scientist at JPL. This demanding goal means sending the most sophisticated robot scientist yet to Mars. Right, but listeners to this show can appreciate and not appreciate the fact that they're not sending the most sophisticated life detection experiments aboard that would actually detect life. They're only looking for possible signs of possible past life, not even looking for present life. Now, if they cannot even determine present life or life in general, how the hell are they going to prove signs of possible ancient life? You see where I'm going? But anyway, I'm crazy. But to tackle this question, which is key in the field of astrobiology, 
Perseverance Forever carries a new suite of cutting-edge science instruments. Two of them will play a particularly important role in the search for potential signs of past life, called the Sherlock, short for scanning habitable environments with ramen and luminescence for organics and chemicals. Well, we call it the no-shit Sherlock. But the Sherlock, which could detect organic matter and minerals, and Pixel, short for Planetary Instrument for X-ray Lithochemistry, which maps the chemical composition of rocks and sediments. The instruments will allow scientists to analyze these features together at a higher level of detail than any Mars rover has achieved before. But yet, not really, because in 1976, the board the Viking landers that landed 4,000 miles apart from each other, one at Chrysa Planitia and the other at Utopia Planitia, dual tests replicating each other's tests of life detection experiments that actually detected life. But they kicked us all in the nuts to keep it secret and to play it down ever much forth. And since then, a policy of turtleneck snail pace speed policy agenda was on the way to not give us that truth, but only to look for possible signs of possible past life. So they won't even compare it to any of these possible possibility signs of ancient past life. They won't even compare it to any possible signs of present extant life. Certainly, they could use the same instruments on the possible present extant possibilities to compare. But Perseverance Forever will also use some instruments to gather science data from a distance. Mass cam Z's cameras can zoom in on rock textures from as far away as a soccer field, while SuperCam will use a laser to zap rock and regolith, broken rock and dust, to study their composition in the resulting vapor. RIMFAX, short for Radar Imager for Mars' subsurface experiment, will use radar waves to probe geological features on the ground, but that would be nice. The probe geological features on the ground, but they could also to be able to prove for archaeological features on the ground. But anyway, number two, the rover is landing in a place with a high potential for finding these signs of past microbial life. Terrain that is interesting, the scientists can be challenging to land on. Thanks to new technologies that enable Perseverance Forever to target its landing site more accurately and to autonomously avoid landing hazards, the spacecraft could safely touch down in a place as intriguing as Jezero Crater, a 28-mile-wide basin that has steep cliffs, sand dunes, and boulder fields. I mean, why, why not land a Cydonia or some other places that I could easily name a list of? Well, because they want to steer away from any possibilities of coming face-to-face, -face, pun intended, with the evidence of not just life, but advanced life and potential intelligent life that once existed on Mars and or exists today. But more than three and a half billion years ago, a river there flowed into a body of water about the size of Lake Tahoe, depositing sediments in a fan shape known as a delta. The Perseverance Forever Science Team believes this ancient river delta and lake deposits could have collected and preserved organic molecules and other potential signs of microbial life. See, potential signs of microbial life. Uh, here's number three. 
Perseverance Forever is also collecting important data about Mars's geology and climate. Context is everything, is it now? But Mars orbiters have been collecting images and data from Jezero Crater from about 200 miles above, but finding signs of ancient life on the surface requires much closer inspection. It requires a rover like Perseverance Forever, yet they will not adhere that same scientific sentimentality to features and areas such as Cydonia. Again, the double standard and hypocriticalness of it all. But understanding Mars's past climate conditions and reading the geological history embedded in its rocks will give scientists a richer sense of what the planet was like in its distant past. Studying the red planet's geology and climate also could give us a sense of why Earth and Mars, despite some early similarities, ended up so different. Because they're two different worlds. Mars is not Earth. Earth is not Mars. They always want you to compare and make you think that it is or was. And it wasn't. And it isn't. But four, perseverance is the first leg of a round trip to Mars. The verification of ancient life on Mars carries an enormous burden of proof. Really? Well, the Viking orbiters gave it. But yet you wouldn't give uh, any updates that were being submitted by Dr. Gil Levin, whose experiments, the labeled release experiments on board the Viking landers in 1976 detected life. You keep rejecting them. And the last proposal you sent home to him in a cab. A 96-year-old man who deserves to have his place in history, especially for a centennial year as 1976, when this was discovered, okay? And so where's the enormous burden of proof that you're touting and blouting when you will not even put that, which is the most still best technology for, of detected life here used on Earth? They will not send that to Mars. Why? Again, make separate chambers, make separate fittings for these experiments of Dr. Gills, as well as a percolate tester. I want to see that shit put to the work, too, to see NASA's enormous burden of proof that that is correct. But Perseverance Forever is the first rover to bring a sample cacheing system to Mars in order to package promising samples for return to Earth by a future mission. Turtlenecks nail pay speed policy agenda. Wait forever to get all these things back to us while the commie Chinese are well on their way to win this race. At least on the surface. But rather than pulverizing rock the way the drill on NASA's Curiosity rover does, Perseverance's Forever's drill will cut intact rock cores that are about the size of a piece of chalk and will place them in sample tubes that it will store until the rover reaches an appropriate drop-off location on Mars. Isn't that what the Ingenuity helicopter was supposed to be used for? The rover could also potentially deliver the samples to a lander that is part of the planned Mars sample return campaign by NASA and ESA, the European Space Agency. Yes, the international collaborators. Haven't we already been collaborated against enough by these so-called cooperationists? But once the samples are here on Earth, we can examine them with instruments too large and complex to send to Mars, providing far more information about them than even the most sophisticated rover could. Well, again, there's a threat there, because they should bring it to cislunar orbit, if and when Artemis ever gets its ass in gear and gets there, sets up shops, sets up space platforms, experimental 
uh, facilities as well as on the surface of the moon and in low Earth orbit where these things could be returned before being deemed safe to even come back to the ground. Am I crazy? Just watch the Outer Limits show called The Sand Kings. Granted, that could be a potential worst-case scenario situation, but it is plausible and something to think about. Now, number five, Perseverance Forever carries instruments and technology that will help pave the way for human missions to the moon and Mars. Among the future-looking technologies on this mission that will benefit human exploration is terrain relative navigation. As part of the spacecraft's landing system, terrain relative navigation will enable the descending spacecraft to quickly and autonomously comprehend its location over the Martian surface and modify its trajectory. So, yeah, we're getting into little systems of AI there being used. But Perseverance Forever will also have more autonomy on the surface than any other rover, including self-driving smarts that will allow it to cover more ground in a day's operations with fewer instructions from engineers on Earth. This fast traverse capability will make exploration of the moon, Mars, and other celestial bodies more efficient for other vehicles. In addition, Perseverance Forever carries a technology experiment called MOXIE, short for Mars Oxygen in Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, that will produce oxygen from Mars's carbon dioxide atmosphere. Now again, Mars does also have oxygen in its atmosphere. They told us, but they're not continuing to tell us. They keep trying to leave that part out, because the measurement supposedly isn't that high, but I wonder... And so do many others. But it will demonstrate a way that future explorers might produce oxygen for rocket propellant as well as for breathing. Yeah, there's a lot of other things that can be utilized too. But two other instruments will help engineers design systems for future human explorers to land and to survive on Mars. The Medley 2, which is the Mars Entry, Descent, and Landing Instrumentation 2 package, is a next-generation version of what flew on the Mars Science Laboratory mission that delivered the Curiosity rover, while the Meta Mars Environmental Dynamics Analyzer instrument suite provides information about weather, climate, and surface ultraviolet radiation and dust. Perseverance Forever is also giving a ride to the Ingenuity Mars Helicopter, a technology experiment separate from the rover science mission. Ingenuity will attempt the first powered controlled aircraft flight on another world. If the helicopter is successful in this 30 Martian day or 31 Earth day demonstration window, the data could help future explorations of the Red Planet, including those by astronauts, by adding a new aerial dimension. Again, that should have been thought up long ago, but the text better now, yada, yada, yada. It still should have been done before. But here's six. The Perseverance rover embodies the NASA and the scientific spirit of overcoming challenges. Does it now? But getting the spacecraft to the launch pad during a pandemic... Again, a pandemic, searching for signs of ancient life, collecting samples, improving new technologies are no easy feats. Nor is a soft touchdown on Mars, only about 50% of Martian landing attempts by any space agency now have been successful. The mission team draws inspiration from the name of its rover with particular awareness of the challenges the entire world is experiencing at this time. Really? But with that in mind, the mission installed a special plate to honor the dedication and hard work of the medical community and first responders around the globe. Isn't that special for a political, geopolitical scam upon we the people and the peoples of the earth? 
but the team hopes to inspire the entire world and future explorers to forge new paths and make discoveries on which the next generation could build. Well, that's part of the problem because it might inspire the entire world and some future explorers, but who are they? Who are the ones having the most to gain in this race and that will dominate and control how it inspires the entire world and future explorers or prevent them? to forge new paths and make the discoveries on which our next generation needs to be built. But here's number seven. You'll get to ride along. The Mars 2020 Perseverance mission carries more cameras than any interplanetary mission in history, with 19 cameras on the rover itself and four on other parts of the spacecraft involved in entry, descent, and landing. As with previous Mars missions, the Mars 2020 Perseverance Forever mission plans to make raw and processed images available on the mission's website. Well, gee, I hope so. What do you mean plans, though? Where's this plans coming from? It is your duty to do so, as we the people paid for it. See, they're all turning commie on us. But if all goes well, the public will be able to experience in high definition what it's like to land on Mars and hear the sounds of landing for the first time with an off-the-shelf microphone affixed to the side of the rover. And another microphone on Supercam will help scientists understand the property of rocks the instrument is examining and could also listen to the wind. I would also want it just to listen to anything as it rows around. But if you are among the 10.9 million people who signed up to send your name to Mars, your name is stenciled on one of the three silicone chips embedded on a plate on the rover that carries the words Explorers 1 in Morse code. Oh, gee, how fancy. How much did it cost to do that piece of shit? I mean, think about it. Instead of putting on a light detection experiment, I bet you it costs more to do that than put on the light detection experiment. Just saying. Now, with that being said, the other runner in this race, the commie Chinese, the Team Wing 1 robotic probe to enter Mars' orbit in February. And this is from January 5th. China's Team Wing 1 robotic Mars probe had traveled more than 400 million kilometers by Sunday morning and is set to enter a Mars orbit next month, according to the China National Space Administration. By 6 a.m. Sunday, the spacecraft had flown for 163 days on an Earth-Mars transfer trajectory and was about 8.3 million kilometers from the Red Planet, the administration said in a statement, adding that it was in good condition. Shit, I want it to blow up! But in February, the probe is scheduled to decelerate as it approaches Mars and then will begin to revolve around the planet to make preparations for a landing operation, according to the statement. Tianwen-1! China's first independent Mars mission was launched by a Long March 5 heavy lift carrier rocket on July 23rd from the Wengcheng Space Launch Center in South China's Hanyang province of opening the nation's planetary exploration program. You mean space domination program. But if everything goes according to schedule, the 5 metric ton probe, which consists of two major parts, an orbiter and a landing capsule will travel more than 470 million kilometers before getting captured by the Martian gravitational field in February when it will be 193 million kilometers from Earth. Depending on the two planets' orbits, Mars is from 55 million kilometers to 400 million kilometers distant from Earth. 
The mission's ultimate goal is to deploy a rover in May on the southern part of Mars's Utopia Planitia, a large plane within Utopia, the largest recognized impact basin in the solar system, to make scientific surveys. It's also one of the regions, according to Dr. John Brandenburg, of which was nuked all that long time ago in the past. If Team 1-1 can fulfill its three objectives, orbiting Mars for comprehensive observation, landing on the planet's surface, and deploying a rover to conduct scientific operations, it will become the world's first Mars expedition to accomplish all three goals with one probe, said Yi Pijang, a leading deep space exploration scientist at the China Academy of Space Technology. Ting-1-1 is the world's 46th Mars exploration mission since October 1960 when a former Soviet Union launched the world's first Mars-bound spacecraft. Only 17 of those missions were successful. And Ting-1-1 means questions to heaven and comes from a poem written by Q. Yuan about 340 to 278 B.C., one of the greatest poets of ancient China. And he, I'm sure he wasn't a commie. But the name signifies the Chinese nation's perseverance, while they poke us in the chest with that word, in pursuing truth <laughs> and science and exploring nature and the universe, according to the CNSA. Ain't that a peach? Told you this was all bullshit. But there is some good news. As SpaceX's Starship SN9, big effing rocket prototype, fires its engines for the first time from two days ago. SN9 has roared to life. A test launch could follow soon. SpaceX has fired up its newest Starship Big Effing Rocket prototype for the first time. The SN9 vehicle's three engines lit up for about one second on January 6th at 5.07 p.m. during a static fire test at SpaceX's South Texas facilities in Boca Chica near the Gulf Coast. Static fires in which rocket engines blaze while a vehicle remains anchored to the ground are routine pre-flight checkout. An SN9, serial number 9, will indeed get off the ground soon, if all goes according to plan. SpaceX is prepping the vehicle for a test flight that's expected to be similar to the epic one made last month by its predecessor, SN8. But on December 9th, SN8 which was powered by three of SpaceX's next-generation Raptor engines, as SN9 also is, performed the Starship program's first-ever high-altitude hop, soaring about 7.8 miles into the South Texas skies. Three previous single-engine prototypes have flown as well, but they all reached a maximum altitude of about 500 feet. SN8 did not stick its landing and exploded in a dramatic fireball. But the vehicle hit pretty much every other milestone that SpaceX had laid out, leading company founder and CEO Elon Musk to declare the flight a big success. SpaceX is developing Starship big effing rockets to take people and payloads to the moon, Mars, as well as other distant destinations, and eventually to take over all the company's spaceflight needs. The system consists of two elements, a 165-foot-tall spacecraft called the Starship Big Effing Rocket and a giant first-stage booster known as Super Heavy. Both Starship and Super Heavy will be fully and rapidly reusable, Elon Musk stated. Super Heavy will come back down to Earth for vertical landings after getting Starship Big Effing Rockets aloft, as the first stages of SpaceX's Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets already do. 
but Starship's touchdowns will be even more precise than those of the Falcons, ideally occurring directly on the launch stand to improve turnaround time, Elon Musk announced recently. The Starship spacecraft, meanwhile, will make many round trips between Earth and Mars or whatever other destination has been targeted. The vehicle just needs the roughly 30-engine Super Heavy to get off our relatively bulky planet. The final six-engine Starship will be powerful enough to launch itself off the surfaces of the Moon and Mars, Elon Musk also stated. The static fire from SN9 was captured on video by dedicated Starship watchers like the tourism site Spadre.com, which webcasts live Starship views on YouTube. It may not be the only such test performed by SN9 before it takes flight. For example, SN8 conducted four static fires over the course of more than a month ahead of its high-altitude hop. So definitely progress has taken place there. And also put out on the 7th, Elon Musk reaffirms pledge to build human colony on Mars after becoming the world's richest person. Elon Musk has reiterated his pledge to build a self-sustaining city on Mars using his vast wealth. The technology billionaire who overtook Jeff Bezos on Thursday to become the world's richest person, take that, Alakablam, pinned a post from 2018 to his Twitter profile explaining what he plans to do with his money. About half my money is intended to help problems on Earth and half to help establish a self-sustaining city on Mars to ensure continuation of life of all species in case Earth gets hit by a meteor like the dinosaurs or World War Three happens and we destroy ourselves, the tweet stated. The post was the continuation of a thread that made an attempt to justify his immense fortune. You should ask why I would want money. He tweeted, the reason is not what you think. Very little time for recreation. Don't have vacation homes or yachts or anything like that. Elon Musk, whose net worth now tops $185 billion, has spoken frequently on his plans to set up a human colony on Mars, claiming that he plans to die on the red planet. As the CEO of SpaceX, he has already made considerable progress towards sending the first humans to Mars, a goal he claims could be achieved as early as 2024, much faster than NASA's turtleneck snail pace speed policy agenda program of deception, while aiding and abetting our international collaborators to get there first. And to destroy this country, though. But last month, SpaceX performed a largely successful flight test of its Starship Big Rocket spacecraft, which it hopes to use to ferry cargo and people around the solar system. The Starship SN8 prototype reached a height of 12.5 kilometers before undertaking a complicated landing flip maneuver and crash landing. SpaceX sparked controversy in October after the terms of service within its Starlink Internet project revealed that the firm may not recognize international law in any future colonies on Mars, or, and I will add elsewhere. Disputes will be settled through self-governing principles established in good faith at the time of Martian settlement, the term stated, adding that it recognized Mars as a free planet. I think that was pretty important to put in there, don't you all? Which now we segue to NASA's turtleneck snail pay speed policy agenda. Also from two days ago, NASA will fire up its SLS moon mega rocket and final green run test this month. Despite a new valve issue, NASA says it's ready to proceed with the next stage of testing the mega rocket that will send the uncrewed Artemis 1 mission to the moon in November. 
Initially, the space launch system, the SLS rocket, performed well during the series of green run tests this fall. That said, ground equipment problems held up the final wet dress rehearsal procedures until late in December when NASA was trying to fill the core stage with fuel. The agency and contractor Boeing, which is building the rocket's core stage, made another attempt last month, and a new issue arose during the next test attempt on December 20th. NASA said in a blog post January 5th, but a fix was implemented that should allow everyone to move ahead with the next stage of testing, a hot fire, which will happen no earlier than January 17th, NASA officials said in the blog post. The end of the December 20th test was automatically stopped a few minutes early due to timing on a valve closure, NASA added. Subsequent analysis of the data determined that the valve's predicted closure was off by a fraction of a second, and the hardware, software, and stage controller all performed properly to stop the test. The team has corrected the timing and is ready to proceed with the final test of the Green Run series. In the same statement, Julie Bassler, SLS Stages Manager at NASA, added that other parts of the testing went according to plan, including the Green Run software, the core stage, and the stage controller. Also, there were no leaks during a two-hour period when the rocket tanks were loaded up with fuel. Data from all the tests to date has given us the confidence to proceed with the hot fire, Bassler added. The hot fire will move to testing all four SLS core stage RS-25 engines, the same type of engines used on the space shuttle. During the test, the engines will fire for up to eight minutes on the test stand at NASA's Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. Should the hot fire proceed to plan, NASA and Boeing plan to refurbish the core stage and ship it by barge to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida for final assembly and launch. NASA is working hard to get all of its equipment ready to send humans to lunar orbit by 2023, a mission for which it has already signed a memorandum of agreement with Canada to send one of that nation's astronauts around the moon. A crewed lunar landing is then scheduled for another mission in 2024 using some of the Artemis team astronauts that NASA announced last month. Also in December, Congress's omnibus spending bill, which gave NASA $23.3 billion for the 2021 fiscal year, allotted $850 million to the Artemis Human Landing System, roughly a quarter of NASA's $3.3 billion request. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine warned the National Space Council on December 9th before the spending amount was confirmed that the full budget request is needed to reach the moon in 2024. Ultimately, if we don't get the $3.3 billion, it gets more and more difficult, he said at the time. Well, I guess it would, especially when you're racing against the commie Chinese. But again, if you follow Elon Musk and invest in him, I think he'll get you there sooner as his big effing rockets could carry up to 100 astronauts. How many for this, SLS? All right, three, four, revamped Apollo? Give me a fucking break. It's time to go balls out. Think out of the box and have a bigger vision to win this race and to make our fate. But hey... That's my opinion. I'm just crazy. But notice how they're trying to still slow us down and on, and politically keep trying to tell us that space is the place that they want us all to think that it used to be. Ha <laughs> Nothing to see here. Nowhere to go. Because remember, this isn't just a race in space. This is a race to dominate in space and dominate over the Earth. 
especially by the commie Chinese, to be used as a war footing. And we're already at a war footing, a Cold War footing in space anyway. They've been building weapons, putting them up there. But anyway, from seven days ago, January 2nd, there was an article called War in Space. It would be a catastrophe. A return to rules-based cooperation is the only way to keep space peaceful. And you know what? It, it would be great if it was on such a scale to where that would be true. We're not considering that we have existential threats around the world, mainly and namely the commie Chinese, Russia second, even those commie Americans here who are trying to take this nation from us as well and hand it over to our enemies. But let's read this. In 2019, U.S. President Donald Trump declared space is a new war-fighting domain. Again, which he was right, this followed the creation of the U.S. Space Force and a commitment to American dominance in outer space. We must have that to keep America secure and protected as well as others. Now, remember, him and Mike Pence were both saying that it wasn't only to protect us from the obvious threats on Earth like the commie Chinese and the Russians and whoever else and protect low earth orbit and our assets there of which makes our life run and you know and the world work but also from the threats coming from deep space that's very important but many don't want to even look at that and the commie chinese definitely don't want us looking at it while they forge ahead so other spacefaring nations and those who feared the acceleration of an arms race in space were greatly concerned. Oh, who are the ones that are focusing on fear for the acceleration of an arms race in space? But the commie Chinese and the Russians. And we're fearing, which we should, their use of space with the acceleration of arms and weapons being deployed. So they're all greatly concerned. At the latest meeting of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, states noted with alarm that preventing conflicts in outer space and preserving outer space for peaceful purposes is more necessary than ever. Well, don't just tell us that. Tell those who are trying to destroy this country and trying to run this world. We're getting the dominionship of the high ground of space. Who are you bullshitting? But the treasonous election of Joe Biden as the next U.S. president and Kamala Harris as vice president <laughs> suggests there is cause for hope. The future of space may look more like the recent launch of NASA's SpaceX crew mission to the International Space Station. Really? That's the future of space to them. It'll look more like the recent launch of NASA's SpaceX crew sending three or four astronauts up through, again, SpaceX, that's helping pave the way, much faster than NASA was able to. But look, who's concerned? Whose vision is that? The treasonous false president, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris. Of course, so right there, that's spelling out, they're going to make our position in space even more weakened for our enemies to overtake. But on board were U.S. and Japanese astronauts on the NASA Space Crew 1, who joined Russian and U.S. crew already living aboard the ISS. As the Falcon 9 rocket soared into space, the collaborative, cooperative, and commercial nature of space was once again clear for all to see. Yes! Keep trying to tout that new world fucking order! I'm getting tired of it! No more international collaborators or cooperationists! It's time to make America first! America secure! But that's not the vision! See, they want for all to see 
the collaborative, cooperative, and commercial nature of space was once again clear for all to see. What, the benefits are saying that America can't do it on its own? Bullshit. We don't need the rest of the world to secure our position in space and to build the infrastructure of which they will be granted to go up because we will always have the high ground. There will be no commie Chinese or anyone else's ability to really put a threat into our position, which would destroy us. But the so-called incoming treasonous Biden-Harris administration appears more interested in international cooperation. Thank you. At least they're writing it. You see, the incoming Biden-Harris administration appears more interested in international cooperation and much more cognizant of the challenges of climate change, pandemics, and other global issues. See? Space ain't important. You don't need to know. You don't need to go. You don't decide for me, you commie treasonous pieces of shit. But a carefully calibrated space policy could do much to address terrestrial challenges while still allowing for many positive space activities. Is that what they really believe? Oh, good. You can sign fake packs. That's exactly what it'll turn out to be. Only good enough to wipe your ass with because our enemies are going to continue to be weaponizing space and building up a presence in space that will eventually overtake us if we do not act now. You think we're all stupid? Still allowing for many positive space activities. Like what? When you're always going to be under gun and under threat of the commie Chinese and others preventing us from going up there and using their ground to destroy us anyway, so we wouldn't be going out there. But that's right, that's part of your plan to destroy America. You treasonous son of a bitches. But since 1967, human activity in space has been guided by the universally accepted principles embedded in the Outer Space Treaty. It was a different time and a different day, and that was outdated. And no one's adhering to it anymore, but they keep trying to focus on the wording as if it still does. But this has ensured that we have had no military conflict in space and required the exploration and use of space for the benefit and in the interest of all countries. Well, according to our previous guest, Sword, he refutes that, that there indeed has been, and there's a reason why that has been. But anyway, any alternative vision of the future of space is dreadful to consider. Really? What about the threats coming from deep space? And I'm not just talking about meteors, but rhetoric about the inevitability of war in space makes such conflict more likely and risk a tragedy of the commons in space. Really? No matter where you go, there you are. Space is a war-fighting domain, whether you want to see it or acknowledge it or not. It still exists, whether you have the ability or not to fight a war in space, which we must. It's coming time that we must be told. And we'll get into that next article. But any space war would have no clear winner. Maybe, maybe not. In a complex globally shared arena such as space, it is important that states abide by the accepted rules and established practices. What established practices? Of what was and then and is old and depleted? And who's going to listen when now there's a more tremendous prize to be had for the nation or nations that gets there first and then takes that high ground and dominionship, which would also be dominating over the earth. See, that only goes to show 
the incompetence and the deceptions and the ploys of these treasonous false presidents and their plan and their vision to hand it to our enemies. No, there's no collusion there. But the U.S. has great scientific and technological advantages and a robust competitive commercial space sector. Well, which it does, but not when they destroy us and sell us out to the commie Chinese and the one world order and destroy this nation. Then you'll become the new world orders. They'll force you to work for them. Wake up, Nazis. But instead of seeking dominance, it could better serve the world and itself by focusing its leadership on harnessing space for the benefit of all humankind. That's what we as America First must do and accomplish and build it on that infrastructure which we would help create to which they can follow, not lead. But in the promising sign, treasonous fake presidents Biden and Harris's NASA review team is composed of an outstanding group of space scientists as well as a former astronaut. Who gives a shit of international collaborators and, and opening our nation to more potential threats of things that are strategically important and common sense to be had by this nation? And you want to... Just allow the nations of the earth who are out to destroy us uh, to sign a piece of paper thinking that they'll follow that while they surpass us in abilities and strength and securing space above us. You commie rat bastards. And for the benefit of all humankind, and that's a crock of shit right there. No real American would see that as being harnessing space for the benefit of humankind while they do what they're going to do and are doing. And then what about the, the piece of paper that was signed by we the people already that they're trudging on and trying to destroy and take from us, of which was signed by others? That indicates many things of how we should also apply space as well to our policies and to this national security and national interest of the people, by the people. For we the people. So who's this composition of an outstanding group of space scientists, as well as a former astronaut, that's a promising sign to these two treasonous rat bastards, this NASA review team, who is like going to dictate to how we are going to enter space and live in space, fight and even die in space, and hopefully live in space? Who are they? And why should we put any trust in them? They work for the commie traders as well, help sell us out to other nations, and to destroy this space program that we have now. Which, if it wasn't for President Trump, it would be beyond dead now. If he hadn't helped invigorate life back into it. And that's the truth. But the current administration reestablished a National Space Council, which is chaired by the Vice President Mike Pence, and which I thought was a great thing, but now I'm looking at it a different way. He's in a prime position to help our enemies, the commie Chinese in space, with him being chair of the Space Council. It should make you wonder now. And this has reinvigorated American investment and leadership in space exploration. This includes an ambitious plan to return to the moon under the terms of the Artemis Accords. Well, fuck Artemis Accords and NASA and these outstanding groups of space scientists as well as a former astronaut and this NASA review team of commie traders. The current administration is the one that reestablished the National Space Council. Not them. 
They were doing international collaboration and cooperation, remember? So now we have a reinvigorated American investment in leadership and space exploration, which we do, but not when these two clowns, these commie treasonous clowns take over. And the ambitious plan to return to the moon under the terms of the Artemis Accords? Again, who you bullshitting? Again, Elon Musk plans on getting us there sooner than that, and even the Moors. By the time they're talking about having a manned mission to the moon, Elon Musk, if all goes well, and if the government and we the people are really behind him, funding it, many more jobs, yada, 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 making this happen, will be at Mars before they land on the moon. But no, they don't want that. Because they're not out for America or America first, or even a strong America, or an America at all. They've already signed off to this one world government that they all were bribed, manipulated, paid, blackmailed into supporting while doing us in. Elon Musk has the bigger ambitious plans to return to the moon as well as bring us to Mars. But to ensure the fragile and shared domain of outer space does not become an area for conflict, the rules that apply to any military uses of space need to be understood. Oh, does it? The rules, again, signing a piece of paper thinking our enemies are going to respect when you can't even respect our Constitution. Okay, and and there be therefore respected and further developed. Uh, failure to do so could lead to devastation, disruption, and impact on civilian lives. No shit. Particularly in the largest and most powerful countries like the U.S. Again, no shit. Whose economies and societies are heavily dependent on space infrastructure. Yes, and it needs to be heavily dependent also on space industrialization. But their access to space has given them the greatest competitive advantage. But they are therefore the most vulnerable if that access is compromised. Oh, that's right. So yet they want to continue international collaboration and cooperation, propping the commie Chinese up so that they gain a high ground. How's that benefiting us? But space is a congested, contested, and competitive area where scientific, commercial, and economic interests converge, as well as military and national security concerns. Gee, just like it does on Earth. I guess then it's crazy that then to consider when President Trump said it's space is a war-fighting domain. You just gave all the reasons of what would make it so. But in this sense, space is like the radio frequency spectrum, which has been successfully regulated and managed for decades under international rules adopted through the International Telecommunication Union. But space is also much more. As the recent Crew-1 mission demonstrated, there are significant benefits when nations come together and cooperate. I'm not going to discount that. But to basically go with tiptoeing through the tulips, flags and flowers, thinking that that's the motivation, that that's the reality of a utopia that's going to happen, is not only unrealistic, it's plain ignorant on those who think this. But enlightened leadership, guided by commonly agreed laws and practices, and a recognition that we share outer space as custodians for future generations is the only realistic way forward. Again, more bullshit. Because what about the commonly agreed laws and practices and recognition that we share in our Constitution that you guys assert from we the people? Who are you bullshitting? It's time to get real, and it's time to make our fate. 
And our fate is not going to be putting your treasonous hands, thinking that you're going to lord it over us with the commie Chinese and the one world government to back you to force us to comply. That's just as unrealistic as your little vision of bullshit you're trying to sell us there. I'm just saying, this pisses me off. Because it's much more than why we need this secure space. And it's been being hinted at and being outright told to you all this past year of various disclosures from the Pentagon and other government sources, etc. And even from President Trump himself, who are coming out stating that UFOs are real. There's more to it. But they're called UAPs now, not UFOs anymore, because we had such a program and brainwashing over the previous years that UFOs are for crazy people. You know, but yet there's the same shit turned to a new name. Therefore, oh, like it's a new thing, but it's being acknowledged. So this brings us to something very important also. That President Trump signs bill giving CIA and FBI six months to reveal the truth about UFOs. Tell me who's really working for the people. And the people, this was from December 31st. I didn't get to read it on the last show, but it was more relevant now to consider. On December 28th, President Trump signed into law a massive new spending bill that allocated $1.4 trillion in federal funding for the 2021 fiscal year. One little snippet hidden in the bill that caught the attention of some media outlets is the topic of unidentified aerial phenomena, also known as UFOs or UAPs. Collective Evolution reports... That this large spending bill also contains the Intelligence Authorization Act, which outlines clandestine reporting requirements to the Congress. In the black budget world, many of these programs have been, and probably still are, completely exempt from the reporting requirements to the Congress. There are developments in this world that not even the President of the United States has access to. Speaking of having access to secrets, the Space Force also has become the latest intelligence department as well. Consider that for many possible factors in what's going on, as well as related to space and the infrastructure. But I am talking about special access programs, or SAP. From these, we have unacknowledged and waived SAPs. These programs do not exist publicly, but they do indeed exist. They are better known as Deep Black Programs. A 1997 U.S. Senate report described them as so sensitive that they are exempt from standard reporting requirements to the Congress. The bill states that intelligence agencies must address observed airborne objects that have not been identified and include a detailed analysis of unidentified phenomena data collected by a geospatial intelligence, and B, signals intelligence, C, human intelligence, and D, measurement and signals intelligence. The report required within 180 days must also contain A, detailed analysis of data of the FBI, which was derived from investigations of intrusions of unidentified aerial phenomena data over restricted United States airspace, as well as an assessment of whether this unidentified aerial phenomena activity may be attributed to one or more foreign adversaries, especially the commie Chinese and Russia or anyone else. But Chris Mellon, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, 
had told the debrief that the newly enacted Intelligence Authorization Act incorporates the Senate Intelligence Committee's report language calling for an unclassified all-source report on the UAP phenomena. This was accomplished in a joint explanatory statement accompanying the bill. Consequently, it's now fair to say that the request for an unclassified report on the UAP phenomena enjoys the support of both parties in both houses of Congress, said Mellon, who is also a former staff director of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So think of the things that were being told here. So this gets put in there. Was it a sneaking? Or was it a planned attempt to get we the people to notice it, that this is coming because we're at a time now where we must be told. And there are those who do not want us to know, let alone let want us to go. So that being said, uh, Tucker Carlson, again, the only one I see spearheading this at all in any type of way in mainstream media on Fox has laid this out. So let's listen to this as he comes on with Nick Pope to speak about this briefly on January 4th. Speaking of conspiracy theories that actually have truth at the bottom of them, the Corona Relief Bill that President signed last month contains a provision that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It directs the Director of National Intelligence, in consultation with the Secretary of Defense and the heads of other agencies, to disclose what they know about UFOs within 180 days. So what are they going to tell us? Nick Pope is an expert on this subject. He's former U.K. Minister of Defense. He's an official of the U.K. Ministry of Defense. He joins us tonight. Nick, thanks so much for coming on. What do you think we're likely to learn? Will they obey is the first question. Will they actually tell us what they know? And if they do, what will they tell us? Well, this is going to be a very interesting year for UFOs, that's for sure, Tucker. And yes, they will definitely have to produce this report within 180 days. So we can get this by late June. Um, It has to be unclassified, but can have a classified annex. So the answer, uh, what, what the public will get, maybe not a lot, but what the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee will get, hopefully a whole lot more, and hopefully some answers to these questions that we've been asking for months now. What is going on in our airspace? What has the U.S. Navy been encountering? And what is it that, that has been in these classified briefings that we know some senators have already had? What do you think they're likely to reveal? Well, it's interesting because Senator Marco Rubio said uh, he would almost rather this was alien because if it turns out to be China or Russia, uh, then we're in big trouble because the sorts of speeds and maneuvers and accelerations that these objects are capable of uh, really is concerning. And I I hope that we're going to find out about that. It's interesting, just before Christmas, there were some leaks Sitting in Office of Naval Intelligence is an organization called the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. They're probably the ones drafting this report. Some leaks suggest they have not ruled out the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Yeah, and there may be physical evidence of the existence of these, of these craft, whatever they are. Have you heard that? Yes, I've heard talk of so-called metamaterials, and I think this report 
really will have to disclose. I mean, what, what the Intelligence Committee want to know is uh, ev- everything in government is fragmented. They want to know who knows what. They want a single official named and put in charge of all this. And this is going to right. include FBI, by the way, as well as the military and, and the intelligence community. We want answers. Yeah, and I don't want to wait till June. Why don't they do it tomorrow morning and finally declassify the rest of the Warren Commission report while they're at it? And this is just nonsense, and, and I appreciate your help on this. <laughs> Hopefully we'll find out very soon. Nick, Thank Pope, you. great to see you. So we have definitely things to look forward to in the coming months, next month especially, with the landings. We'll see how that goes. But we ran a little long with the news. But I want you to contemplate that all, and I think our next guest should be more than apt at also continuing on from what that conversation with Tucker in regards to what was signed to what has to be disclosed in 180 days. Our guest, Mark D'Antonio, and he works with Mutual UFO Network, MUFON. So everyone, I would like you all to please go to www.thefacesofmars.com. That's And please scroll on down the page, see the information about tonight's guest, Mark D'Antonio, and be sure to click on the links there for the MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, established 1969, and click on his image there for his book, The Populated Universe. Life in the universe may very well be the rule and not the exception. Mark D'Antonio. And and you click on uh, images below that for various websites such as his FX models. You need to check that out, especially on the Facebook page for the FX Models Planetary Replica Division. You all need to check that out. This guy definitely into some amazing work. And uh, I want to talk to him about that as well. And check out his YouTube channel for Sky Tour Livestream with Mark D'Antonio. And under that link, you can see the, the YouTube video there for Tucker Carlson, where we just uh, heard there. And under that, definitely check out my buddy Larry Bowen's recipe for baked mac and cheese. For those packing them and smoking them on this show, these tarty treats are really good each week to make before the show and to have during the show. Because as listeners to this show could appreciate, we have a motto here. Pack them and smoke them. Because you're definitely going to need them when we come back on the Martian Revelation. I'll be back. We are your friends. Imagine that everything the U.S. government has told you about UFOs since Roswell has been a lie. Imagine that in the decade after Roswell, the government attempted communication with the aliens and succeeded. And after that, in absolute secrecy, things had gone far, far beyond this. Now imagine that tomorrow, the whole secret program is going to fall apart, and every terrible thing is going to come out. All we have left now is a prayer. Morning Star Pass, the collapse of the UFO cover-up. A fictional but unflinching and terrifying look inside the UFO cover-up. The secret government that supports it, and the world of the aliens themselves. And then, how the whole secret kingdom ends. Morningstar Pass, a book that pulls no punches and does not sheath the sword unblooded. Morningstar Pass, plunging boldly where no other book has ventured, captures the whole wondrous nightmare that the UFO experience has become. From bizarre experiments performed on helpless abductees, 
to horrifying mutilations, to beyond, to the world of secret government supported by its own secret police, to the aliens in their secret bases, and finally to the beckoning stars themselves. The book does this by placing the cover-up, humanity, and the earth in the real cosmos, where humanity and its passions are a part of the universe, not an aberration on it. Then comes the fall of the cover-up, and a climax of violence and desperation, to leave the human race facing the multi-hued stars with eyes open and seeking its place in them. The sands of time have run out for the cover-up, for against it, leading an army of investigators and warriors, comes Cassandra Chen, beautiful, driven, and doomed. Who can save her and us? Haha, <laughs> you'll have to read it to find out. Morningstar Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up by Victor Norgard. Get yours today. You can find this at www.firstbooks.com.
you packed them and smoked them. Welcome back, everyone. Indeed, we're on the edge of forever. More ways than one. And, of course, you're listening to the Martian Revelation. That is upon you all again now, and I'm your host, Gary Legier, the Martian Revealer, known also as the Mad Martian. So let's introduce our guest, Mark D'Antonio. And Mark D'Antonio has a degree in astronomy, and he's the Mutual UFO Network's chief photo video analyst, and he's the host of Sky Tour Radio on KGRA, and he's the host and creator of Sky Tour Livestream with Mark D'Antonio on YouTube, where people could go to watch live as beautiful deep sky objects materialize before their eyes in mere seconds, courtesy of the Sky Tour Livestream remote observatories and their research telescopes. Mark is the CEO of FX Models, a model-making and visual special effects company specializing in digital, physical models, and organic special effects in the film industry. He has an extensive work history in the film and television arena, appearing regularly on a number of networks and television series and shows. And Mark appears on a number of networks including ABC, CNN, <laughs> Discovery, Sci-Fi, History, National Geographic, and Science Channels, performing on-camera work in his role as a professional astronomer, UFO investigator, scientific principal presenter, and photo-video analyst. In addition to such roles, he also creates visual effects props, directs visual effects shots, and creates computer-generated imagery, CGI, for productions. He can easily be seen regularly on NASA's Unexplained Files on the Discovery Channel, What on Earth on the Science Channel, and the proof is out there on the History Channel, In Search Of, hosted by Zachary Quinto, Contact on Discovery, and a variety of other shows. So he is characterized as the voice of science reason, yet fully expects alien intelligence is out there and possibly even here visiting us at the Earth. What a great guest for a most crucial time. How relevant. Besides his MUFON duties, Mark delivers many presentations around the world at some of the largest conferences, including several mutual UFO network symposiums and international UFO Congress conferences, appearing as a speaker to discuss the science that we do know from a scientific perspective. As such, he is a voice of reason amidst what at times is chaos. And then look at the times of chaos now, so we need that voice of reason in this mist. But he explains the real prospects of finding extraterrestrial life in the solar system and elsewhere. If extraterrestrial intelligence has managed to ply the vast gulf between the stars and reach us, then science should be able to tell us so. As such, he has teamed up with Hollywood icon Douglas Trumbull to hopefully find answers with the creation of their aerial anomaly detection system, formerly known as UFO2Go, UFO-TOG2. Such true scientific results will back up the stories we so often hear from those who have encountered something strange in our skies. But Mark has a book, The Populated Universe, available on the link on the facesofmars.com, which is linked to Amazon worldwide. In the book, he has taken his astronomy focus on exoplanets and explores the scientific search for extraterrestrial life and makes the case for what he believes is the predisposition of the universe to the creation of the building blocks of life and perhaps life itself. 
And Mark's degree, again, is in astronomy, and he has spent decades capturing hundreds of thousands of images of many kinds of sky phenomena using a diverse range of photographic gear ranging from small cameras and backyard telescopes to large multi-million dollar professional telescopes in large research observatories. He is a member of a STEM board at a prestigious scientific center in Connecticut that serves the needs of many New England education facilities. STEM, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and math, reflects the need to place a clear focus on those disciplines and places an emphasis on how those disciplines interrelate in order to provide advantage to children as well as to adults. And we're all children of the stars, aren't we? So we all should be learning these things. But Mark operates the John Zach Memorial Observatory in Connecticut with its presence known on YouTube as Sky Tour Livestream with Mark Antonio. This observatory is nearly fully automated for online use and provides live deep sky astronomy talks using advanced and highly sensitive cameras. The observatory will be joined by a second in the Arizona desert in the near future under a beautiful dark sky after all automation systems are installed, tested, and completed. I wonder if he's familiar with the cosmic obsession. This would be something my friend Francis Walsh loves as well and is very passionate about. But once computer-generated imagery programs as well as image analysis programs became more readily available, he began to work with such software to create his own imagery and to augment and analyze existing imagery. His unique blend of stage performance experience, astronomical extraterrestrial life, and computer-generated model-making knowledge come together in his photo analysis work where he he has been utilizing advanced software tool sets for many years to coax data out of the imagery. That is genius and what is needed in this field, especially my particular field in dealing, processing, and studying the surface features of Mars data for many years. But when he's not creating digital or physical models for clients or productions with FX models, he can usually be found working on the aerial anomaly detection system again the UFO TOG2 concept in his own observatory or utilizing remote observatories worldwide to obtain nightly photographic and spectral data for analysis. That gives the eyes to many of the world just via through the internet who can't otherwise have the opportunity or funds or abilities to view through all these various professional tools to see what's out there. So it's definitely great in the things that you do, sir. And I very much thank you for being on. And as we pave the way, as we make our fate on the Martian Revelation, to where your work is going to be all the more needed and focused on, in my opinion. So I believe you with us, Mark, and thank you very much for being on. How are you today? Well, thank, thank you for having me on. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, no, no problem. You fit right in, sir. i got to tell you, after that bio, and it's long, but... I think it, it drives to the heart of who you are and what you're trying to do, especially, i got to commend you with your work with STEM, science, uh, technology, engineering, math, and all these other subjects that you're help doing, you bring them also to that, which adds the artistic flair about what makes your nature you, it seems, as well as some of the things I've seen on the site, we'll get into later on the on your YouTube channel, which I believe are scale well models, uh, 
topographically made, like of craters or of different features. Uh, that is sure. amazing and very much needed, and I've never seen any so good. That well, you know what we did? You know, uh -huh. The USGS, United States Geological Survey, these guys um, have databases online, all this material, and I've uh, spent time talking to many of the people, the people that curate the data, mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to get a hold of this data and uh, manipulate it and then create from it uh, literally images that I could then 3D print on very detailed printers that would give us the opportunity to uh, showcase these craters, give people a crater if they wanted one. I have, I've been sending craters all over the world to people that want them. And like, well, my favorite crater is Jackson on the far side of the moon. We got it. <laughs> and we have every crater on the moon, actually. So, um, they're not in-house, but we, we print them to order, and uh, they really come out very nice. And the latest thing we have is actually, it's only two and a half inches in diameter, but it's a fully detailed moon with every, uh, most every crater you can see at two and a half inches in diameter. And uh, we have a, a special 3D printer that does that one. It's a very highly detailed printer. And uh, it's, I have one, well, I have pictures of it too, and I can have it. I, I could show you if we do video at all. Yes, whenever um, but, you're ready to go on video, uh, everyone who would like to appear by video, which I know you people love, always adds more life and spice. And this guy's got life and spice. You know, he's laying away, paving a way for the future, which we all need to see and be inspired with. Not with all the crap going on in the world. This, this is where we should be. And that's what I mean, sir. And you look like you still got a long way to go. You made a huge presence in the world. And I'm going to ask you later, you don't have to answer it now, what do you think that impact is and how does that keep inspiring you? Because I know it must. But anyway, uh, so am I right? Did I hear these things are made to order? Meaning, what are we talking? Or does it depend what machine it is? And whenever you're ready to go video to show us, that's cool. Uh, me and Green, yeah. and I leave that between you guys. It's really simple, actually. If people uh -huh. say, you know, my favorite crater is such and such crater, um, Messier crater. Okay. Okay. It's in a particular location on the near side that we see. Uh, and we can say, okay, we'll go get that data and we will uh, go to the curators, get that data, grab it and modify it, manipulate it and change it so that we can then 3D print it. And then we'll print them out. <clears throat> you know, and it's like uh, these, these crater plates are like four inches by four inches in size. So they're not huge. But we could make them bigger, but we make them four by four because that's convenient and it's easy. Uh, and four you know, by people, four, four foot by four foot, correct? So like half inches. a plywood sheet. Four inch, four inch by four inch. Oh, four these inch. Little, oh. These are little craters. They're like little. They're like little collectibles. Um, wow, even, that detailed. Can, the ones I'm seeing on the Facebook page. Yeah, that's only yeah. four inches. That detailed. Yeah, actually, we did a, a video, uh, a friend of mine, P&K Space Imaging, uh, Keith and Paul, uh, other buddies of mine who um, do streaming, they stream the moon primarily, and uh, what happens is uh, Keith was here, we were doing a, a video, and we actually took the Tycho crater that we created on a 3D printer, and then we, we actually had a light, and we actually moved it through the sun angles like Tycho would see during a regular moon cycle, uh -huh. and he put it up on his page saying... We photographed Tycho Crater uh, throughout the entire moon cycle. <laughs> Technically not a fib, but we're, we're playing a little game with folks. And 
everybody said, wow, that's beautiful. How'd you do that? That's incredible. That's exactly what it looks like. Well, yeah, well, it was just a model of Tycho that we had, and we ran a flashlight over it. And then we just uh, did it in video and made it into what looked like a time lapse. And it was really funny. Uh, but that was because we took the model. And, of course, when people print these things, they have lines in them. They're called you know rasters that you can actually see the stair step creation because these printers will sometimes make these stair steps. Uh, you know, as they print uh, like a hill, especially hmm. it'll go up and over, up and over, up and over until it gets to the top, okay. right? Because that's like prints in layers, right? Well, we have a way of getting rid of those layers because we put the data back in that was lost, and then we make a mold of this so we can reproduce it at will. And once we have this beautiful, clean new crater, then uh, we will have we have actually the ability to uh, you know offer it to anyone anywhere, and you know. Uh, the moon, I mean, the moon How we much? make, uh, you know, is, is a sphere. It's, like I said, it's two and a half inches in diameter. And if you look at it, you, you can use a magnifying glass on it to see some of these craters. And it's uh, it really done. We, we have what's called an SLA printer here, and we, uh-huh. we printed it with that. So it's quite, quite, uh, well, I should say utterly detailed. It's, it's amazingly detailed. Is it so, limited on the size that it could produce? Can it produce a four foot by four foot uh representation of whatever data you want to use to apply to it to make uh, a, uh, a model of it and well, how yeah. much would that be <laughs> well actually the the 3d printer that we have that does the craters uh-huh. um it can do something that's like 11 inches by 11 inches by oh. like about 11 inches tall but oh. uh, we make these four inch square uh little plates because uh, people like to actually collect them, you know. And, you know we're, and you make we're them then. Let's say you use a bigger image, you would have to t- mosaic them uh, to get a perfect, uh, a near perfect seam of a bigger area of features. And if so, how much would that cost? I'm very, well, you know, I'm, I'm asking because I'm interested. I may have a yeah, couple no, of jobs, and I'll some donations will certainly come in for it. Well, we've we've actually done um, we've done mosaic work and stuff like that, uh, but. Generally, when we grab the data, uh, we grab the whole section uh, at a time, and then we can actually take a subset of that, which is typically what we do, mm-hmm. um, to get what we want out of it. So we'll take more than we need and take less. We don't have to take little tiny spots and then add them together. We can get the, the, the overall imagery. We can get the, uh, the imagery for the major portion that we're trying to reproduce. And then we just, you know... We can subtract from it to isolate the object, for instance, you know, like say people like Clavius Crater, famous, uh, made famous in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey uh-huh. uh, as the uh, site of the moon base uh, for that movie. Yeah. And if people like Clavius, well, we can reproduce Clavius and we go get the data. We reproduce uh, the crater. We make it a, a growable object and then we grow it. And then uh, after it's grown, we treat it and manufacture uh, all the new data that has to fill in the data that's lost in that that printing process, and then we uh, will make a mold of it, and then we have a perfect crater that we can offer for folks to see. And when you get them on the back, it's got a label saying what it is, how big it is, and where it's located on the moon, and so forth. It's kind of a neat little uh, object, you know. We're trying to do like a a crater of the month club for people too. You know, <laughs> they can, they can actually uh, so subscribe. There's no way. To make something that would come out to four foot by four foot, 
of a, of any particular feature that they would someone would pay you for to create? Well, I mean, for something that size, we go a different route. Okay. You know, we can. We I'm, can I'm sorry if I'm steering something. off, but this is very interesting. At the same time, you'll you relevant well, to be shown. Yes, it, it is. I mean, we, you know, I own a visual effects company, so <laughs> we've actually done uh, eight foot by eight foot uh, nice. uh, moon models. Okay, that nice. that were of large areas of the moon. We actually did you know force perspective uh, force perspective lunar landing sites, uh, like for instance to. When when people say we didn't really go to the moon, I can say, well, uh, here's the arguments, and I, I take them apart systematically one by one, mm-hmm. uh, and then actually for what on Earth and for NASA's unexplained files and for other shows, uh, they've asked me to to literally go head to head with people that think we didn't go to the moon, mm-hmm. and you know, tell me why we really went to the moon, and, and can you prove it? And I can say, yeah, I can, I can, um, you know, and for instance, like when people say, well. The shadows are going the wrong way on the moon. You know, and you can see that those have to be studio lights because the shadows are going left here and right there, right. you know, or, or whatever. Well, I set up that exact scene. You know, I used one single light to light the whole scene. It was called a 2K, something from our movie studio. Mm-hmm. And I set it way across the studio, and it was aiming at our low, narrow, uh, I'm sorry, low, uh, it was at a low angle aiming across our lunar scene. It had craters in it and astronauts and a lunar module in the distance, actually. Cool. It looked quite nice. And the shadows were going all the wrong way when you looked at it down low. But if you didn't touch it and you just moved the camera up into the air and looked down on it, now the shadows were going all the correct way. And ah. it had to do entirely with the way the terrain was rolling and going down then up that changed the apparent direction that the shadows were going from that low-angle perspective mm-hmm. of the other astronaut's camera. But from up above, it's they're all parallel. They're all perfect as they should be. So, you know, I don't just say things. That's that's my, my if you want to call it a claim, to, to, I don't want to say fame per se, but, but a claim fame, so to speak, is that I don't just say things. I show them. Right, using you know, the data, and that's what's important. I, I show, yeah. I show data. I show experimental data. I show why it's this way. I don't just say it's this way. Right. There's too many people that are out there. They pontificate and say, it's this way because I say so. Right. But they don't tell you what they're talking about. They don't say why. Yeah. And then here comes you with all these models and everything and really I put them in don't. their seat. <laughs> yeah, what, do you, what do you think someone who says that your shadows are wrong says when I show them this model? And they right. show them how the shadows are undulating and, and the shadows are going the wrong way. And then when I go to the top without changing the camera shot, I'm sorry, without changing or cutting the camera, you take the camera from that low angle and right there you go up, right up overhead and now the shadows are all parallel. What does someone say who thinks that the shadows show that we didn't go? Hmm. Now they see that the shadows are all like they should be. How do they argue that that's not correct? And there's always another way to find out which Elon Musk and others hopefully will be uh, accomplishing soon. Uh, there's yeah. stuff at the site. There should be footprints and other things that should be easily spotted with a high enough uh, resolution camera at that time, and, right? And you can, you can see it now, Gary. You can go to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Quick Map. True, true. Okay, online, and you can zoom in, as I do often on some of the streams with uh, SkyTour Livestream. I'll take people down to the lunar surface, down to where we can see something 10 feet across. And guess what you see? You see the lunar you know, descent module. Sometimes you can even see the shadow of the flag sticking up. 
and you huh. can see the lunar rover tracks. You can see all the experiments on the moon. You can see the astronauts' footprints as they shuffle across the moon in some cases. And it's there for every Apollo mission, you know. Nice. From Apollos 11 through 17, you can actually see, except for 13, of course, you can actually see all these things. And, know, and so, they're making them protected sites now. I'm sure you've heard of that or spoke about that already. Yeah, yeah, they have. You know, And, and that's that's important because as soon as we, uh, you know, commercialize the moon, uh, which I believe we should. It'll be a major tourist spot. And we should take advantage of our nearest neighbor. It's not like there's life on the moon that we're going to disturb. You know, <laughs> Mars is a different story. I have I have my own ideas about Mars. I, oh, I we'll, go <laughs> yeah, we'll, well, we'll go there. Yeah, we'll definitely go there. Terraform without ever even going to 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 Mars. We can do the terraforming without touching Mars, and uh, that's a whole concept that I've talked about numerous times on Sky Tour Radio, mm-hmm. now, which is KGRA now. We usually go eight to ten Sunday nights, but uh, they're changing us from to six to eight. You know, and that show is pretty popular. You know, we reach uh, more approximately three to three and a half million people a month. Sweet. So it's actually a very good show. Um, we're doing we're doing good, you know, and that's you know that's something that is really uh, you know a positive answer, you know. And you yeah. talked about STEM before, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the STEM committees are important because they help steer education. Now, thing with me. Is I took my astronomy degree down the outreach path because I looked at people who look up and don't have a clue what they're looking at but would love to know. Indeed. And it's like, oh, I was one of those ones. And I tell you, I really wish I had someone that could tell me what things were. Yeah. You know? And they didn't. And I had to learn the hard way. I had to go get books and start reading. I mean, that's not the hard way for me. I love that. But the fact is, I had to get the data. Uh, books, yes, obviously, but the data was what I had to get into. And uh, what even keeps me afloat, ironically and maddeningly, because of the roots of what I see on Mars and, and showing what's in the Martian data, which is why I was asking you about your work so you can do bigger things. Uh, is it possible to set up something and uh, I would like a couple certain features done? Or maybe like on a even two by two or a four by four uh, board, especially with the detail I see, and those are four inches. Oh, I can imagine what this representations would look like, uh, and I know the audience would as well. They would love it, uh, but we would have to obviously. Is it really expensive? Uh, no, no. I try to keep the the, the little four inch plates down, but um, right. But we're talking you know, two foot or by four foot, but four foot, yeah. yeah. Right, so now what you do is you have to print multiple ones of those, put them together, remove the seams, that kind of thing for for these. Mm-hmm. If you want to actually do this uh, another way, then what you could do is get uh, someone to CNC route these things, and uh, they could CNC route them in a uh, material uh, that we prepare, and we've done this actually before with the folks. We've, we've uh, had it um, set it up for folks. Mm-hmm. And um, then... The CNC router is going to use the same data that we would use to grow it with, okay? Oh, okay. And, and that's the nice part. And then that, that, that router can make it almost any size as long as the table is big enough to handle it. That and uh, that would count for a 2x2, two 4x4, two, four four, sometimes 6x8, you know, I mean, nice. feet, you know. So we're talking you can get large things, you know. And then uh, after it routes it out, see, the router is going to make those jaggies too, those those up and down steps, you know. Right. Right. Uh, 
that becomes problematic as well. Hmm. So we have to fill that in, and we have to treat this after to make it, you know, bring back that lost data. And once we do that, then it looks beautiful. We've done architecturals for folks that actually use that technique, and they think, wow, how did you do this? And we say, ah, trade secret. That's really not a trade secret. So, we just replacing the data that gets lost. Now, does your company uh, do that? Do I talk to who, you or someone else? Uh, sell, uh, no, we, I we do that. That's what we do. That's one of the things we do. You know, we, we reproduce things in front that are, are real at a smaller scale. And I you and know? I could provide the data that I want to have done, you guys could do. Yeah, depends what the data is. Depends how good the data is. The face of Cydonia you know, as one. What's that? The face of Cydonia as one, being as actually, one of them. I've actually been after that a particular data set for quite a while now. Um, well, I got processed you know, raw data of visual imagery. Now, what else it, you could find for that? That would need to go with that. I'm assuming. Yes, uh, yeah. we, need the, uh, we need the MOLA data, which is the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimetry. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, when you're pointing down, I have my video on, by the way, I don't know if you got it up, but... Um, uh, let know. me see, I don't see it on the thing. Mean Green, uh, he says, oh, I see you on the screen of the, uh, Skype, but yeah. not on the actual uh, stream on YouTube yet. But maybe it lags a little, so maybe it's coming in. Yeah, it's a, like a thirty-second. Uh, it's a, like a thirty-second delay, but um, you know, and we we just live with that. There we you do are. Work. We kind of play to it, but uh, you know, as long as you don't watch the YouTube feed while I'm talking, right? Because then you're gonna be right. thirty seconds behind. Right. No, I'm yeah. seeing you. I'm seeing you straight time. All right. So something like that could be done if I could, or if you could find a mola, or if I. That's probably another service too. It'd probably be better if I can get. The, the data or links for you and then what are we talking about I mean is it realistic I mean why not you know talk about it on the air unless you'd rather do business off the air but I think it's very important because the listeners may want to help with this yeah see the thing is um, I've been after the Cydonia uh, data set for actually a couple of years now Okay. and I know I know where it resides and uh, I know that uh, Malin Space Science Systems has it and because uh, they actually created a 3D model of this hill that looked like a face. And, well, they, yeah, uh, but they destroyed it for the hit piece with the release of ESA's data that shows <laughs> even what he did to it, uh, it. It doesn't even look like it in comparison with the ESA. I mean, you remember back then, I'm sure, what I'm talking about. Uh, I, but, but see, I'm, I'm on the side of things where I, I, uh, I feel that it is – uh, a Martian hill, uh, and I know you enough. don't, which is well, which makes for good. Well, they say it's a mountain, it's a massive, it's a hill. They have no idea what it is. But either way, in my opinion, whether it's natural or completely artificial, my by what I see myself, because I'm crazy now, mind you. <laughs> All right, so I got an excuse. They don't call me Mad Martian for nothing. So, is the artwork? It's the carving. It's everything to what I believe your machines could bring out from the data that I bring out from the raw data. The data I show in the images is not how NASA provides these image slash, at least of the CTX imagery. And I need so, uh, 
I need a model done. And of course, some other features, which I, I will, if interested, show you, you know, just for shits and giggles between us off the air, uh, as, uh, you know, colleagues looking at data, interesting things. But the face is definitely one that, uh, and one of them, is more pristine than the others. They got like 11 or 12 CTX from MRO so far. That's context imagery, not actual high-rise imagery. Uh, but about but only they only gave us one high-rise, which makes you question. They're hitting it so many times. There's got to be more. But anyway, out of the CTX imagery, one is Christmas shows so much great detail, and that's the one I would always want to use. I'm actually going to paint it on my wall. I'm going to take up the whole wall in this room. Eventually, I'll show, and I'm going to paint it. But the next best step would be to have that model of it, which I'm sure you could appreciate. Well, I already did one a um, number of years ago for one television show because uh, they asked me about the face on Mars. And what I did was they said, um, is it a face or is it a hill? And I took, uh, I used the raw imagery way back then, and I actually figured out mostly what it looked like. And we didn't have the actual 3D model of it. Right. Uh, so I, we had to kind of work on the 3D model. Right. And uh, so in creating this 3D model, what I did was I created the face, okay? But I created it as all the data sets together showed it to be. And by changing the angle of the light, um, you could see how it looked like you were looking at one half of a face, mm -hmm. okay? Right. Now, that is uh, a very special condition that humans are very good at, and you're aware of it too, I think. Pareidolia. Um, yes, and so if you notice in those images, the other side of that face, so to speak, mm -hmm. is not filled in symmetrically at all. It's not filled in with another eye socket exactly like the other one. It's not at all. It's actually a different shape altogether. But your brain says, ooh, a familiar pattern. I'm trying to make a familiar pattern out of something I, 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 I know. I'm trying to take the unfamiliar and make it familiar. And, and so your brain does it all the time. That's why we see bunnies in clouds. That's why we uh, see... I know, um, or uh, faces in potatoes, like uh, our friend uh, Seth Shawstack said there on this show. I hear where you're no. going, but oh, uh, faces and potatoes. Don't you give me that? <laughs> yeah, you know, but it's the ever-ending battle with this, isn't it, sir? But you know, yeah, I, I appreciate you know the different sides, and I understand. But again, I'm crazy, and uh, the more data and using the data for one's hypothesis is very important yeah. to acquire, regardless what you know what you interpret it as. The thing is, for to make an interpretation, you got to use not belief or what, or like seeing faces. You you got you need data, comparative data, multiple data, and uh, but you also need crisp data, and you know, as best as possible, and then get the best data for them. Now, is there more than one molar? Uh, interpretation over that, or have there been, you know, better over the years? As far as I know, Global That's Surveyor was limited in its resolution yes. of the MOLA. Now, I don't know if any better has been acquired from my memory. Well, keep keep in mind that um, the Cydonia face location, mm -hmm. that represents a very, very small part of, of that whole Cydonia region. Right. So, you're spreading all this good data Okay, out amongst the entire Cydonia region, but the amount of data relegated to that tiny little feature 
is very little. Right. Uh, oh, and that's why it doesn't look as good. However, I have seen some of the other data uh, from the Mars Orbiter camera mm-hmm. that actually shows very detailed uh, imagery of this hill. Um, but and, not the MOLA data. <laughs> right? No, there's no MOLA. That's correct. And that's the problem. And the, But see, that's the thing. Mars is actually a big planet. Right. And it's really not that easy to get that kind of MOLA data. Even the moon, which is much smaller than Mars, uh, the moon is just over 2,100 miles in diameter. And when we look at the moon, uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has strips on it that it has not filled in with better data, even though right. it's been orbiting for a long, long time, down as low as 30 miles above the moon. Right. You know, Yet um, it misses spots. So we're still filling in over time. And that's the thing that with Mars even bigger, uh, it's going to be a problem. I have great MOLA data for, for Olympus Mons, you know, the volcano, right. the Tharsis region, where all the volcanoes are on Mars. I have great, great MOLA data for that. Right. In fact, I, I 3D printed uh, Olympus Mons. It looks really beautiful. But That'll look awesome. Uh, you have any pictures of that, sir? Uh, I might actually have it here. I didn't know we were going to be talking about that. So oh, I know. Uh, I apologize, I, sir. But, have, you, know, you know, if it's convenient, you know, that's cool. But that would, those, that would be awesome to see so people would see really what we're talking about if they're not clicking those links on the facesofmars.com that goes to those uh, sites that I uh, linked there. Uh, that would be yeah. the next best step. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you're doing a break. If you do a break, then we'll, I'll, I'll go dig about I think I know where they might be. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'm in my uh, office, so it's like, you know, um, and we're under red light because, of course, we're on the air. So, um, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, they're. I think they're in the other room, um, but it's okay. I can maybe I can dig them up here. I know. Uh, right. When we go, to but break, it doesn't matter. Cool. Cause, you know, whenever whenever we get a chance. But you know, like for instance, for uh, for uh, our our moon, I was telling you about. You know, this is our our moon. Okay, and uh, I know that it's not really that looks that doesn't look that hot right now because they're under all the lights and the camera doesn't have the highest resolution. But if you notice, okay, is has relief. Lowered. Yeah, you can see the relief. That's important. Look at all the craters. We have most of these craters are here. The dark side, the, what we call the dark side, it's actually the far the side. Uh, side we just don't see. Right. The far side. Okay, these craters are all there, and um, you know. It's just an amazing little piece for something two and a half inches in diameter. So we have the capability of making things really, really detailed. And this moon, uh, it, it takes a long time to, to take data and add it up to make something like this. So, um, you know, you see the final result, but what you don't see is all the effort that went into making it. Um, right. And with the craters, that, that's different because we take a discrete location, we cut it off. And you know, it, it's if it goes up a hill by the end, it's thicker at the end, you know, because it went up a hill. Right. If it's thinner at the other end, well, it went down the hill, you know, and, and we have all that relief. Um, nice. It's really great. So these things are are nice. They're they're wonderful, um, and I could make them a little bit smaller, almost like little uh, little chips that are only just like you know, inch and a half or two inches across, even um, half the size, and with even more detail than the other printer can show. So we. Uh, uh, the sky's the limit, you know. We we uh, had another 3D printer we took out of service because it was actually um, 
more detailed than that one there. That's the one you said, right, right behind me, right there. Okay. The distance, that guy right there. Right. Okay, that's the that's the filament printer that we use for the craters. Nice. Um, what you can't see is you can't see the other printer. Now you can. It's over there under under that cover. Oh, okay. Um, that's the one that we actually use for um, the uh, the SLA work to actually get this stuff to look as good as it does. Um, and there's a lot of these small SLAs out there that are, are very, very good. They deliver good results. You know, the other one, and that little printer took out of service are one that costs uh, like 15 to 20 times more uh, because of the resolution and capability. So it's a lot easier, and uh, we got really good at it really fast. I can imagine how much you would charge then for that, uh, like let's say for that moon compared to what I'm asking you for, if you, if you could make, what, what what kind of price range that's realistic? And I, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of work. Yeah, and that's something I'd have to think about anyway. Okay. Our little moons here, you know, I mean, I even, you know, I have a, a little 3D printed stand that says the moon, cool. you know, and this little 3D printed stand is what the moon goes on when you get it. I know a lot you know, of the listeners will probably want to buy that. How how much is that? And do, can they buy it through your site? Yeah, this the moon is, uh, we we're, we haven't uh, officially started offering it yet because this is the master, the, the first one, and we had to make it to make sure that it works, and then it does. Oh, okay. Um, and so uh, this particular moon is going to cost somewhere because it's a piece of art, okay, right. and it's it's hand painted by an astronomer that'd be me, okay, right. and uh, so it looks accurate. We have the rays of the craters in there, very very highly detailed work. Okay. Um, once the printing's done, so this is a piece of art that's going to cost around a hundred bucks, and um, you know we we have um, uh, other stuff that we're doing where um, it's a lot cheaper. The craters are a lot cheaper. Those are about thirty-five to forty-five dollars okay. uh, for the four-inch squares, um, and that counts getting back all the data that's lost uh, when the printing is done with that stair. Step Damn! So approach, this face, you know? so this face one that I would want, uh, that would probably cost a few grand easy. Depends how big you want it, you know. And the other thing too to keep in mind is that without MOLA data, we would have to fabricate that. And so we would have to go through iterations of making uh, elevation models for it, you know, and that uh, more time and more skill of right. a crater, right? Okay, if a crater you know, has a, it goes down in here, right? Well, you have to take slices through that crater from the highest ridge all the way to the bottom of the crater. If you take three slices, well, that's very rough. But gotcha. if you take a thousand slices through here, that's going to be more detailed, right? And so. You would want to take as many and make as many slices as you can. So we would make a 3D model of it, and then we would take that 3D model and slice it up to the resolution level that would make it worthwhile. And then we could grow it. But building that 3D model will come from a lot of different sources. Okay, and I know that people. I know that 3D model exists, and uh, I know that um, we've been after it for some time. Um, I, the, the face I made, um, I actually made out of clay. Uh, I fashioned and, and, and shaped a, a clay face on Mars from the uh, raw data. That'd be cool. And, uh, yeah, we used that on, on the uh, production for the, for the show. And huh. they, they saw with the light change, they could see how at one point it looks like you're looking at a face. Right. Some people said it looks like a monkey. Some people said it looks like an Egyptian pharaoh. 
Other right. people said it looks like another person. Other people said they couldn't see a face. It's like, well, because they're not falling for the pareidolia where the brain automatically fills in the other side. All right, all right. So, so, you know, um, so, you know, that, that, that whole thing and, and Cydonia features are interesting. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I actually, I've talked to Richard Hoagland and, and, uh, and so forth. And, um, he's, he's really not, uh, I don't think he's, he's not too keen on my thoughts. Um, because he's not, he's not up to par anyway to be, uh, who he was known and what he represents. I won't get into that now. We'll, we'll pass on that. Like the politics I'll say, but, uh, I will, um, say that again, multiple data and people could have their impressions. This ain't, you know, what I needed for my, my research, my analysis, my, uh, my own personal dissertation, as it was, uh, to, to fulfill, and, and and also other features of Mars that I'm sure you would love to, you know, who knows? You know, that's why I'm hoping, you know, meeting someone like you that could be able to at least know what to do with these things or how to bring them forth. But obviously funds need to be had to acquire. There's a lot of skill, time, artwork. So this is definitely going to be a future prospect. You you want to do it right, you know. You don't right. want to make a make a hill and then put some eyes in because there's supposed to be the eyes there. I mean, you want right. to put in what's really there, right? And then see based it. on the data, visual and the three dimensional, as best as possible, that's right. right? That's right, and that's why people, you know, um, I, you know, I, people call me. You know, they say, "Oh, you're a debunker. You don't believe this." You don't believe, and that's not true at all. Okay, I've had well, you don't have to agree, but that don't mean it, it doesn't make it fun or interesting to, to look at things yeah. and do things. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this. I don't think you'd have the patience then. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I, I have, like I said, I, I knew I was going to be an astronomer. I knew I was going to be a professional astronomer at age nine, and I never wavered from that. Hmm. I went, I went, age nine. I mean, what kind of, you know, obsession, obsessive personality does that make? You know, and I don't have OCD. <laughs> uh, but I can tell you that um, I, I knew I was going to be an astronomer back then, nice. and uh, and I felt that uh, when I looked up, I said I got to find the answers. There, there's got to be life other other places than Earth. I thought that at age nine, mm-hmm. and then um, the guy that actually got me into astronomy is someone that I never met personally, but um, you know I had been in the in the hospital for a month when I was nine, wow. and when I came out, I designed a space station. I called it my great space station plan, and I made it on a little envelope my mother gave me. I said, the great space station plan, and I drew it on notebook paper, page after page after page. Wow. I talked about how to make greenhouses. I talked about how to get rid of carbon dioxide in the air. I was nine, you know, but I went to the library. I was crazy about trying to figure out space travel. I looked up charcoal filters, and I figured out that, you know, hey – when I was nine, this was something that was, you know, a very important way to get rid of carbon dioxide in the air. And, and so I figured we need that on the space station. So I had carbon dioxide scrubbers and, and on the on my space station plan. Nice. And I sent the entire plan down to NASA. I addressed it to NASA. I didn't address it to a specific person because I didn't know anybody at age nine. Right. Hey, and, check this out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then three weeks later um, – I come home from school, and my mother says, Mark, there's a big box for you in the living room. I went, what? I went in, I looked, and it had a NASA sticker on it and the return address. I was like, oh, NASA! NASA wrote me. <clears throat> so uh-huh. I opened it up, and what I saw in there 
was life changing. It was, first of all, in a now a manila folder, manila envelope rather, uh-huh. was my space station plan. I took it out. I didn't even look at what was underneath it, but tons of stuff was under it, what I'll tell you about in a sec. Uh-huh. And I started going through my plan on every single page. The scientist who looked at my plan wrote notes and made arrows that this is a very good idea. Oh, we do this now. This is cool. It, and he goes, <clears throat> he said, it's amazing. You see that we need to get rid of the carbon dioxide in the air. Hold on one second. All right. That's awesome. And I said, yeah. Well, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, well, of course, right? Uh-huh. He goes on. And at the end, he signs it um, with his name. But he says, <clears throat> keep going. I think you have a career in this science. And I was like, wow, a real scientist thinks I have a career in this science. Yeah, very, you just very gave him a new patent right? to create. <laughs> and, the, and the guy signed it, uh, Bert Lee. I was like, oh, okay, okay. This 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 uh, this scientist uh, named Bert Lee signed this for me. Uh-huh. And then uh, time passed. I got my astronomy degree and uh, <laughs> argued with the director of my observatory many times about the prospects of extraterrestrial life in the universe. Always on the pro side, I think it's there because Earth is not special. And uh, he was like, "Yeah, well, no, there's there's no other planets." He said, <laughs> "Yeah, huh. that was proven wrong." Well then, uh, <clears throat> one, <clears throat> one, um, you know, once I uh, was in my own career, you know, and so forth, and doing uh, computer science and astronomy, I ended up, um, I ended up going back to the house, and I decided to look up that scientist, and I found that scientist who had done my, forty years earlier, who had looked at my big space station plan. All right. He worked at JPL, and he was in charge of all the solar system robotic exploration. He was in charge of every single craft that went to Mars. Are you going to tell us you put a working model of your plans in that box? No. Oh, that would have been (laughs) great. I'll tell tell you what else was in there in a moment. I forgot, sorry. Um, But uh, his name... Was Bert Lee? That's true, but uh, he's known as uh, by his nickname Gentry, Gentry Lee. Huh. He's the chief engineer on all uh, in the outer space, outer solar system directorate, and he handles all the robotic missions to all the outer planets, every planet actually. Wow! So um, this is the guy that got me into astronomy, and so I wrote him an email, and I said, "You don't remember me, most certainly, because I sometimes don't remember last week, but." Oh, yeah. And I explained to him this whole story I just told you. He wrote me back within a half hour, and it was like a one-page uh, response. He goes, oh, my gosh, of course I don't remember you, but that's exactly what I used to do. I used to do that at NASA. I really enjoyed that. And he goes, keep in touch. We should talk more often. <laughs> and so we've actually uh, had some conversations. So it's really kind of cool, you know, to, yeah. to to do that because it took 40-plus years to get back in touch with the man who actually got me into astronomy. And it was a neat feeling to you know because you remember and, and see that's the thing that's the, the reason the seeds there. which were planted in the past by you and stem led you up to that connection like now i can see a connection to that you okay. see it how it works you see okay that's the reason that i began to think look public outreach is the way to go 
Mm-hmm. You know, if I can influence some other children or adults even yeah. to how they look at the night sky, then I win. Mm-hmm. I win, you know, because, you know, eventually, you know, our, our, our we're going to have to leave this planet. But, you know, the thing that, that, that right. Gentry Lee did for me was in that box underneath my uh, space station plan or no, wait, my big space station plan. Right. It was in this vanilla envelope. Okay. It was sitting right at the top of the box, and there was a lot of stuff underneath it. And what was underneath it was books, plastic model kits, decals, cloth mission patches for all of the human missions to space at that time, and a lot, lot more brochures. He went through, and he actually – I'm not sure if he didn't spend some of his own money to get these model kits, okay? Wow. Because they came from the NASA gift shop. And yeah, it was expensive. full, chock full. It was like he picked he picked me to just fixate on to get all this stuff because I guess maybe he saw some potential. Well, he might have made a really, he might have made a pad on your design <laughs> from a nine year old kid. <laughs> of course, he's gonna get you some treasures. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, all treasures. And and I actually got a big black magic marker and I labeled it space box. Wow. You know, that's what it was. It was a cardboard box, a simple cardboard box. Right. It was the space box. And my cool. space box lasted for, oh, decades. Wow. And then finally it, it 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 the walls broke and fell apart. The flaps had long since been torn right. away. Right. And the mission patches scattered to the winds, and I gave some away to friends. And uh, the model kits long since made, glue on the windshields and stuff like that. Uh <laughs> And uh, every brochure probably lost the time. And eventually everything got scattered to the winds. But what didn't get scattered was my mind. And I kept the astronomy in the forefront. I kept where I was going with astronomy in the forefront. And I knew that I was going to play a role in trying to shape how people view the night sky. Because they don't view the night sky. More ways than one. Look, you have have 3D print and stuff. I mean, I'm curious about how that aspect did that stem from your early uh, interest in space, or was that just another offshoot of something you just like to learn and see how you can mold it together? Well, I was in a master's program for computer science, <clears throat> and in that program, um, I learned how to utilize the computer to do all kinds of things that I would never have known how to do. Right. So I learned how to write programs and do software and all that, and so I realized... Wow. Big tool, very important tool. I mean, and I was there for the first, we call it the two-holder. It was the IBM computer that had little floppy disks that were like this big, okay? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Put in, we uh-huh. called it a two-holder. And, and, you know, that was incredible. Um, but, you know, as memory increased, as computer capacity increased, as processor speed increased, the capabilities increased, and we were the my friend John and I. We wrote the first program to, to process imagery from the Hubble Space Telescope, not because the Hubble Space Telescope folks said write this for us. We did it on our own, mm-hmm. and we sent it to the Space Telescope Institute, and they were actually using it because we were doing some cool things with it. And of course, we were quickly eclipsed by other software that came along, but that's fine, right. you know. But the thing was that you see. Uh, showed me how that image processing was a very important aspect because we took images and pulled things out of these images 
that you just don't see with your eye. And that was right. so important. And that was like, yeah, wow, huge revelation. And that had to be, you know, 30 plus years ago. Wow. You know, so uh, from that point forward, I started doing image processing and image analysis, you know, and it hasn't stopped. You know, there's other people that wrote far better tools than we did. Right. And I started using those tools. I figured, hey, if someone can do it better, more power to you. Thank you. You did great. All right. You know, I'll buy it from you. You know, I'll buy you a, I'll buy a copy to use. <laughs> and that's where you go. Or, uh, or you can sell me a model I want <laughs> where I, otherwise yeah. I couldn't get it. And that's how this happened, okay, because I was using the computer for that. I was right on the front end, right on that very front end of people using 3D printers to do things that they needed. You know, I have parts that I made for the Joint Strike Fighter uh, you know, for the Defense Department. Sweet. Because, um, you know, my company does a lot of work for the Navy and does a lot of work for uh, defense companies, all right, and defense right. agencies. So I uh, I had one of the best 3D printers uh, in all of New England, um, and we were able to print parts on the 3D printer that were needed on this fighter. And they were then taken and made into titanium from what we provided oh. and used to hold the fan blades in <laughs> to this 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 fighter so you know there's a lot of uses for these things but it's all based on not wanting to kind of get out there and say i want this defensive work no i want to i want to get very familiar with these 3d printing systems you know and that's just one aspect i have a laser cutter too that's a 2d cutter uh -huh. i mean i work alone most of the time so i basically have to have a smart way of doing my work a 2d so the 3D cutter printer can be cranked away and the laser cutter can be cutting away, and that SLA printer can be zipping away over there. And I can be sitting here working on more data files to get ready to go, you know. And at the same time, I'll be making, uh, uh, you know, a physical model of a submarine for the Navy at the same time. You know, I mean, we've made 12-foot-long models here of ballistic missile submarines on, and also little tiny models of even smaller, of, of large craft, you know, changing their scales. And it all comes down to having the right digital model to start with. Maybe and make a deal part, with Elon Musk. Maybe make what? a deal. Maybe make a deal with Elon Musk as uh, you know to get it out to the kids in schools. Models of these small, big effing rockets that he wants to build. I mean, you could. Wow, I can see that happening and inspiring people because that ship's going to look pretty rad, and uh, the kids are going to love it. And uh, you yeah. know that'd be something. I mean, it's an idea. You know, hmm. yeah, yeah. But that's I mean, incredible. I mean, I, I watched uh, all the launches. I've, I've uh, you know, but you know, the thing is, um, I, I believe in utilizing technology to get across what we need to do. And you know, Sky through live stream is our observatory uh, system, and um, we have two observatories now. We have one here in Connecticut. We have one out in the Arizona desert, mm -hmm. and we access them remotely. We don't go to them. We don't enter them. We enter them to install all the equipment and for periodic maintenance. Okay, but then we run them from from Arizona. I'll be running at twenty four hundred. And then any of us could basically hop online and check out this data, look at the images. Uh, is that what I was reading from the bio, sir? Yeah, it's gonna it's live, you know. So you see it as well as I do for the first time when it comes in. I've seen things for the very first time ever. Nice. through these telescopes eyes and then uh, I image process them to bring out the data the right. detail that may not be visible right away right 
Right. Uh, so many, uh, so many beautiful images, which I actually have some to, to show. I can show if we want to go into that. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we're going to go to a break in a few minutes, so therefore it'll be probably about I don't know five minutes. So you know, you could if you want to gather or do what you needed to do to bring them in. That'll be perfect time to start getting to sure. that. I mean, damn, you know, it's really cool that. to it's really cool to meet you, man. And to be honest, I'm I'm sorry I didn't know of you before. Oh, it's okay. It's not like I'm out there saying, "Look at me," you know. It's like no, but your you know, work is of... important. It should be, and uh, and by what I hear, you know, you're all over television, successful show. So you are out there. You're gonna help make our fate in the f- current days to come. Because I also want to get into the aspects of you know UAPs and UFOs and that aspect of your work. Because I'm sure you have opinions there too. Uh, you know, you huh? <laughs> I'll you. you. <laughs> so, well, maybe now we should go to that break if, you, if you're cool with that since we already went sure. there. All right. So uh, I look forward to coming back. Please mute the mic, sir, and uh, we shall be back in like five minutes. Okay. All right. I'll be back when you come back. All right. Thank you. So, everyone, ain't that pretty cool, man? Uh, check out those links. Uh, go to his Facebook page there for FX Models and go to FXModels.com. And uh, click on the link there for his YouTube channel as well. And uh, obviously, there's many things to do and see from uh, from Mark D'Antonio. Hopefully, I'm saying that right. Is it D'Antonio or D'Antonio? I don't know. I'll ask it's either. Oh. You're saying it right. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I unmuted just to say that so I can go back to mute now. All right. No problem. <laughs> so, everyone, as you know, the motto here, pack them and smoke them. You're still definitely going to need them when we come back on the Martian Revelation. I'll be back. Don't run. We are your friends. <laughs> If you are a listener of the Martian Revelation, then you are well aware that the entire planet Earth is currently involved in an all-out worldwide space race. Every country across the globe, including England, Germany, India, Russia, and China, are involved in a mad Martian rush to be the first country to plant their flag on Mars. Get an idea of what these brave astronauts will be finding on the planet Mars before President Trump plants the first American boots on the face of Mars. You might want to familiarize yourself with George Haas and get to know his work and read his books. Haas has been studying NASA and European Space Agency imagery of Mars for over 25 years and has co-authored two books with geomorphologist William Saunders called the Cydonia Codex and the Martian Codex. I encourage you all to support his research by visiting his website at www.thecydoniainstitute.com. And remember, as George Haas has always said, through NASA's own pictures, the truth will be revealed.
If you are a listener of the Martian Revelation, then you are well aware that the entire planet Earth is currently involved in an all-out worldwide space race. Every country across the globe, including England, Germany, India, Russia, and China, are involved in a mad Martian rush to be the first country to plant their flag on Mars. Get an idea of what these brave astronauts will be finding on the planet Mars before President Trump plants the first American boots on the face of Mars. You might want to familiarize yourself with George Haas and get to know his work and read his books. Haas has been studying NASA and European Space Agency imagery of Mars for over 25 years and has co-authored two books with geomorphologist William Saunders called the Cydonia Codex and the Martian Codex. I encourage you all to support his research by visiting his website at www.thecydoniainstitute.com. And remember, as George Haas has always said, through NASA's own pictures, the truth will be revealed. Uh, welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Legier, the Mars Revealer, known also as the Mad Martian. Of course, you're listening to the Martian Revelation. That's upon you all again now. And we're with our guest, Mark D'Antonio. And if anyone would like to call in on the timeline, well, you feel you, this is the open door you can if you have any questions or comments for the guest or just in general, uh, 202-684-6955. 202-684-6955. One more. 202-684-6955. Blow those cobwebs off. All right. So I know it's late for a lot of you, but that's okay. But uh, I'm sure many might have uh, some questions for this guest. So, uh, Mr. D'Antonio, we are back. I see that uh, you're back as well. Uh, yes, sir. And, all right. So um, I see you uh, brought some little models there. And, uh, yeah, if you want to talk about some of them, because I would definitely like to get uh, more in the aspects of the knowledges of your work with MUFON and the other reasons, who knows from what age, did it start changing your aspects of, to what these craft may represent and the bigger questions of your search in the heavens there. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd be always looking, always with the hint of, you might see something, <laughs> you know. Very true. Yeah. Very true. That's, that's, what, that's what a lot of people do. You know, they, they look up because they're, they're hoping to see something. Uh, I'm no different. I, I did for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I realized that the chances that we're going to see something with our eyes, our eyes look at the visible spectrum. It's, it's, it's a little tiny range. Uh, of the, all the different types of light that reach us, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the infrared and the radio spectrum are way out here along with microwaves, and then the uh, ultraviolet is out past the blue end, and now we're, then we end up with the gamma rays and x-rays out there, and those are not visible to us. So the question becomes, if there are, if there is an alien species that managed to get here, which I believe is possible, mm -hmm. and that, that's the basis of many arguments I've had, or discussions, we'll say, uh, with people in academia because <clears throat> I view it as there's no reason that they can't be here. Well, space is so big. Space is vast. You realize what they'd have to do to get here? Yeah. But the thing is, we don't realize what they have to do to get here. Right. Okay? We don't have the technology they do, so we cannot fathom 
what they do to get here. I have ideas. You know, I always say, well, I have ideas. You know, we have ideas how they can do it. And that is why uh, when I saw <clears throat> Doug Trumbull's uh, UFOTOG system, uh, you know, uh, many years ago, mm-hmm. uh, it was a Humvee which had a, a, a telescopes that would come out of the top and look around and scan for moving objects in the sky, trying to find that anomalous object. And um, I did an NPR show on, on NPR radio with uh, – uh, one of the hosts, and it was a show about the X-Files, so to speak. And on that show, I talked about aliens and the possibility that they might exist. Again, from a scientific point of view, anything that's not from Earth is therefore alien. All right? Technically, so, yeah. Yeah. And so he basically said to me, well, you know, as we left, as I left, he goes, I'm going to have to get you on the show with Douglas Trumbull next time. And I went, Doug Trumbull? I mean, I own the visual effects company. I mean, I modeled what I do after Doug Trumbull's work. Wow. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, Blade Sweet. Runner. Okay? Yeah, you know, he worked with all these greats, right? I mean, he You had he some did. life, man. <laughs> yeah, and the guy was fantastic. You know, the silent running with Bruce Dern and the, the robots, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. I mean, these were just fantastic uh, movies that shaped me, brainstorm, reading someone's thoughts and being able to see what happens after someone dies. What do they see in their brain? What's the brain see? Uh-huh. Things like that. And yeah. um, so I was like, really? I mean, why Why Doug Trumbull? Oh, he's a UFO hunter like you, he said. What? Really? I came home right away and I, I wrote a one-page letter to Doug Trumbull in my email. And I figured – I found his email online. I didn't even know if it was his uh, you know, I mean, it said him, but I don't know if he ever sees it or whatever. So I basically uh, looked at this and said, hey, um, if he reads it, great. You know, uh, but hey, it's a shot. You know, if he's if he's hunts for UFOs like I do, then yeah. maybe we can talk at some point. It took about a half hour. I got a two page email response from him. Two pages. I went to your website, fxmodels.com. He says, you know. And excellent in every respect. I think we can use you right now on a project we're doing up here right now. But whoa, and I'm shaking. It's like whoa, this guy is my idol. This it's guy like, is the man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> after he goes, why don't you come up here tomorrow? Oh, I didn't sleep that night because I was like Doug Trumbull. Oh my gosh, what do I call him, Mr. Trumbull? You know. Your, your Highness, what do I call him? You know, I mean, the, <laughs> the guy is like a legend. Right. And um, when I met him, I called him Mr. Trumbull, but it wasn't really that. It was like Mr. Trumbull. <laughs> right. The whole nine yards. And within a week, he had me dispense with all that, and it was Doug. Um, and it was like the grandfather I never knew I had kind of a thing. The man was generous, kind, and he actually wanted to hear what you had to say, you know, and I just walked onto this set on doing this commercial with him that he was doing for, for Burger King of all places. Mm -hmm. And, um, he wanted to hear how I thought we could do things. And I'm like, really? (laughs) I was like thrown off. Like, yeah. He goes, well, here's what I want to do. He says, you know, what do you think? You think that'll work? I go, uh, who am I to, and I'm thinking, who, who am I to say, no, I don't think so. But you better get fact, an answer if you're there. <laughs> yeah, I, but I did think that it was a good idea, and I, I said, well, I mean, 
maybe if we change it this way, it might be easier to make. He goes, okay, have at it. Sweet. And that was that. That was it. Now, I ended up uh, for one of the scenes we had these catapults we made, and they were coming from three different directions. Okay, and if you can see on the camera, so I had one here, one here, and one here, and they were catapulting these these three inch Oreo cookies that were supposed to be you know small Oreos, but I made them larger, mm-hmm. and they all have to meet in the middle and then smash into millions of pieces. And that was the shot, and we were shooting it at very high frame rate, which means that you get a really slow motion um, uh, of these cookies hitting and breaking apart, and it would be just beautiful, which is what he wanted. Wow. So I thought, hey, that's cool. So uh, the first iteration of the catapults that they had already made had springs that were going to, like, shoot the cookies. Well, the spring shot the cookie almost only the length of the catapult. Okay, it wasn't that nearly strong enough. Right. So he came in and says, how's it going in here? I said, well, these springs really aren't that powerful. And I looked to my left, and I saw this roll of surgical tubing on the floor. And I said, oh, hey, can we use the surgical tubing and make kind of a, a rubber band thing? And he goes, oh, sure, if you think it'll work, have at it. And I said, okay, cool. He walked out, and I thought, wow, Mr. Trumbull thought I had a great idea. You know, I must be somebody now. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> okay. Um, all things come at a price, you see. And so we wired these things up with these, and, and one of the guys in there said, yeah, I don't know, that seems to be too strong. And that's, that's, we, we let it go. You know, it's like, wow. And I said, nah, I think that'll be just right. He goes, I don't know. And um, I thought, you know, Mr. Big Shot now, remember, Mr. Trumbull, you see, liked my stuff. Right. Okay. Uh, and this was this was actually, by the way, the first day I met him, day one. Okay. Right. First day I ever met him. I hadn't been calling him Doug yet. It was still Mr. Trumbull. Right. And uh, so I set we set these cookies up on these catapults and we we're firing a test shot. Okay. Well, we had this one catapult fire the cookie, and we said, "Okay, here we go." And he, again. He, the guy said, no, I don't know. That seems like it might be too strong. That's one of the guys working on it. <laughs> and I said, ah, I think it'll be fine. Okay. He fires a catapult. Boom. Pow. Goes right through the garage door. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it didn't just go to the front of the catapult. So improvement. <laughs> oh. and I heard, I mean, we saw insulation flying, the, the, the foam insulation inside of the wheel. Poosh. And I'm like, oh, it was yeah, like a bullet going through the floor. <laughs> you made a deadly and weapon. I, uh... Yeah, I thought to myself, I am so fired. And he said, you are so fired. I go, I didn't need to hear that. I didn't need to hear that. And I hear Doug swearing out in the, in the driveway. He comes barging into the, 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 the garages where we were working on this, in one of the effects houses. And he goes, what the heck was that? And and I w- went to raise my hand to say I did it, and I looked to my left, and this guy was already pointing at me uh-huh. with a look on his face like, mm-hmm, this is the guy right there, yeah, like that, mm-hmm. And I looked to my left, and there was his finger pointing right at me, and I sheepishly raised my hand and said, yeah, Doug, I I think we're on the right track, but I... <laughs> overwound <fun>. it. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, he goes, yeah, you're right, you overwound it, you blew a hole in my door, he says, uh, he goes... But you are on the right track, so so just unwind it, okay, and, and unwind a few of those strands, and and try again. You're you're doing this is good. And he walked out. I thought oh, I am so not fired. And then uh, we did unwind it. We got the perfect blend, and then we finally got the shot we needed. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, this is fantastic. 
And several days later, he was dug now to me. And right. uh, at the end of it, he called me up to the office, and I thought he was going to tell me. And his and his wife Julie was there, who's a sweetheart. And they were sitting there, and I expected him to say, "Well, you know, thank you." And you know, and I thought, "Well, it's been great working with them, right?" And instead, he said, uh, "Julie and I have been talking, and we'd like to continue with you." I'm like, "What?" He goes. We'd like to continue. He says, "What we think you you you've got a good head on your shoulders." You you and he goes. He said this to me. He goes, "You get me. You know what I'm trying to do. I don't have to explain it, and that is really helpful when everyone around me doesn't have a clue. Sometimes, I went, "Wow," I was really humbled by that. And so to this day, that was gosh, that had to be like seven years plus, maybe more ago. Wow. Uh, we've been great friends ever since. A really good guy and. Um, there was a production we did. Uh, there was a movie, Approaching the Unknown, which was being shot up there. And um, I was part of the uh, model-making team. But what they weren't used to was the fact that I was also a science guy who understood space travel. And they designed these ships that would not fly in space the way they had designed them. Right. And they had a you know a barrel, and then they had this long stalk, and then a little capsule at the end of it. And it was supposed to be going around this barrel, okay? Well, it wouldn't go around that barrel if it didn't have a counterweight on the other side, okay? Right. And otherwise, because it, it, it wouldn't have forces that are balanced, and it would actually just, the whole thing would just start pirouetting and go all out of right. uh, shape. And I said that to them. I, I told them very gently, and we're in a meeting at, at, uh, at what's called the mezzanine up there, and um, their art director and all the people were there, um, and then Doug was in on the meeting. Just He was basically effectively renting the studio to them to let them do the work and he was advising and i didn't really have much of a reputation with these guys and then and they said you know uh so so what are you saying about this now and i said well it it won't work okay that the ships are designed wrong uh because these you know they, they need to counterweight and the guy very i remember very distinctly kind of Raised an eyebrow, he looked at me, and he kind of said, you know, we've designed these ships, okay, we know what we're doing. <laughs> and Doug raised his finger and he goes, uh, actually, if he says that it won't work, it won't work. I was like, whoa. And the guy then looked at me with that, that arrogance and now slammed down in his place. He looks at me and he goes, <clears throat> oh, um, well, uh, could you tell us more about why these won't work? <laughs> and... I explained very nicely because I, I'm, I don't want to be confrontational with anybody. And I said, well, here's why I don't feel it works. And I explained the counterweight situation. And then all the ships had counterweights. And they eventually got the, the movie out. It had these beautiful. Because you're uh, trying to represent reality, at, right? Rep- and therefore like artificial a- gravity or something like for the scene. Yeah, it, it represented a proper reality. Okay. Right. And and that's the only kind of science fiction Doug actually likes to do. Uh, he turned down the Star Wars franchise. He was offered the option to do all the Star Wars franchise, huh. and he turned it down because he didn't like the universe. He felt the universe was not the right universe, you know. Right. So, and it's all about the data, right? You want to make sure that that you know if there's no sound in space, then your spaceship shouldn't roar as it goes by you if you're looking at it from space. Right. Okay. <laughs> so that kind of thing, you know. And it's all data, right? Like with these these crater plates I make, you know, it's all about accurate data, you know. Like this here, I got one. This is a Martian crater. Uh, you can actually see the contours of this Martian crater yes. quite nicely. 
Okay, and that looks really pretty. This is a typical crater on Mars, right? Then this is actually uh, Olympus Mons. And you can see that it actually has, you know, the right scarps. These are those, those really big scarps down here. I know yeah. this is small, but, you know, that's the size of the curated data. And then I made a larger one. This is actually a uh, volcanic slump. It's a, a rift valley in Mars, okay? And there's, there's a hole here, this, this little... This little area here, you can see there's some uh, land that collapsed in there. Mm-hmm. This is actually a really cool thing, and it's actually pretty thick at the end because that's the contour that I made. That's the right. slice that I made, right? Mm-hmm. And then back on the moon, okay, this guy right here, this is the Apollo 15 landing site. Wow, all right? look at that. Okay, we have the rill in there and everything. Look how and, detailed. And, uh, so, imagine, a, yeah. imagine a better, uh, a wider one. And with higher resolution data, which you would need to make a bigger scale model of it, right? The better the data, the better the prop, right? Yep. That would right. look we so actually, damn amazing. We, have, we do get better data, you know, uh, for those, you know. Uh, and we've been able to you know, get that data, and the, and the folks that curate the data are happy to, to uh, give it to us, you know, and help us with it. Yeah, you know, I've also helped them with their system because there have been issues with their uh, system at times, and I'd be one of the first ones to find that there's an error. So I would call them and say, "Hey, you got a problem with this particular data set?" They're like, "Oh, thanks, man." You know that kind of thing. Right. So they're very. Uh, it's sort of beneficial, mutually beneficial, right? So it's kind of cool, you know. Uh, but you know, it's it's like you know playing with this stuff. Uh, I feel guilty for the work I do sometimes. I feel guilty, like you know. What do you mean? I, I, Shouldn't people hate their jobs? <laughs> oh no! Yeah, well, damn no, man. This yeah. is it's it's amazing, man. It keeps you busy. There's so many different things that uh, that you yeah. do in, in all these works that well, it, it doesn't get that monotonous, I guess. And uh, you know, you're very passionate with, and that's good because it's making a difference yeah. and in the kids' lives and stuff. Have you been going to like schools and stuff too with all these? And uh, do they? Yeah. The principals and stuff, uh, or well, like actually, parent teachers, you know. You know what I've done is uh, we we've made a bunch of these that we haven't painted, uh, and uh, craters, you know, and uh, we're actually trying to make them available to people that are visually impaired, so they can actually feel the texture of the moon and the craters yeah. on the moon and see how they go down and up. Try to give them that that feel. Um, that's very important to me because you know it, it was only five and a half years ago that I was I was blind. Um, really? I was also a quadriplegic. Yeah, I was a quadriplegic too. <laughs> Go figure. Holy crap! Um, well, well, that's because of a surgery that went wrong. I, I ended up waking up blind and quadriplegic, and uh, they had me in a coma for a week. And I was wide awake during that coma. I could Holy hear him talking shit. about me, saying, "Well, he might not make it." Blah blah blah. Um, oh, that, was yeah, never, that makes you feel good, you know, knowing to talk to. You couldn't even talk, huh? No, I couldn't, and I, I couldn't move or anything. I couldn't see. Uh, I had ears. That's a nightmare. But, um, yeah, it was. I'm but sorry you know, went through that, is? sir. You know, that's, that's, I'm glad that's you went through it. You, you came through it, obviously. Yeah, no, the weird thing is I, I was never frightened. I knew I was going to be okay. In fact, during the coma, I was building a circuit in my head, and – when I'd get tired, I'd put it away in a little box, okay? Oh, and then when I woke up else. again, my brain would wake again, and I would pull it out and start from where I left off. And the thing I discovered in that coma, which is something I've been 
um, might be the subject of an upcoming talk, actually, um, is that the brain has an amazing ability to remember everything it's ever encountered and experienced. When I was just a head in a jar, like on Futurama, okay, and didn't have a body connected to me to work with, I remembered everything in my life, every single episode, every single thing I did wrong, everything every single thing I did right. right. I remembered all of it. And I could randomly access it and go there. When I was I five, I did this. Well, oh, that's what I did. And I saw it in full color, full detail. You know? Wow. But as uh as they started pulling me out of the coma, and of course I remember them saying so, okay, we're gonna take him out of this coma now. Uh it was medically induced, um, to see if he'll survive. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna survive, just hurry up. Right. You know, I literally was getting impatient with him. Yeah, 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 hurry up. And as they brought me up, everything reconnected. And I felt that box up with my circuit in it that was going to help doctors communicate with my brain. I, I was building this thing to help neurologists connect to me. Huh. Uh, it started slipping away. And I was like, no, 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 put me back. I got to get that. And I wanted to go back. And, of course, nobody can hear me. And I kept coming out. Now, what um, if that was and is something... That could literally do that. I see what you like. I can I can see the frustration, but think about it. Stranger things have happened. That could have been the next thing. I knew it would work, but I I, I lost it, you know, and I still can't get it back. It's gone. It may, may be in here somewhere. Maybe through biofeedback. If you're familiar with biofeedback, that might be sure. able to help. Uh because you're in a, you know, you bring yourself down to a complete relaxed state, not enough to comatose you, but maybe low yeah. enough to where maybe you could access that that those those that memory again, because that would be yeah. amazing. Yeah. Why yeah, not? Here's the here's what I here's what I did learn out of all that. Uh-huh. Uh, I learned that the brain is indeed plastic. The brain can reroute because the doctors said we don't think he'll ever see again. Okay, because his visual center, what happened was during the surgery, there was a clot that got loose from the surgical site, and it blew up in my brain, and I had eight major strokes. Oh, my God, an aneurysm. All at once. No, no, strokes. Okay, clot. No, that blew up. Oh, a clot blew up. It wasn't a burst blood vessel. That's the aneurysm. Okay, and these clots distributed themselves throughout the brain. All right, and my visual cortex is almost gone. Okay, yet I see with almost ninety eight, ninety nine percent of my everything is back. I drive. I went. I navigated Manhattan in my pickup truck uh-huh. uh, to go to talk at a conference there. Right. Okay, and this, in other words, how how did this happen? The surgeon that I talked, I just talked to the surgeon who operated on me um, just a, a couple weeks ago, and um, he basically said what I told him was that I knew I was going to be okay. Because I knew that I could rewire my brain. Somehow I knew in that coma is when I came up with this process. I'm going to make my brain uh, rewire itself. And he said, well, how, how do you do that? And I said, well, it's kind of silly sounding. But I, I came up with a little mantra and it's called train the brain with pain. Um, you know, When we go to a doctor, we say, give me a pill, doc. This hurts. I want to make it go away. In many cases, that's the right answer, you know. But in cases where we're trying to heal from, say, strokes, I'd learn how to talk again. I'd learn how to see again. Eight strokes, huh? Move again. Eight, you said? Yeah, there were eight. They, they thought four to six, and then it turned out it was it was uh, six to eight strokes. Wow. And 
all these dead spots in my brain right now. And um, so um, he basically said to my family that, you know, the, the visual center was really hammered hard. Um, hopefully he'll get some level of sight back, but um, you should be prepared for the fact that he may not be able to see again. Oh. And uh, that was June. Uh, that was actually May 30th of 2015. Wow. Okay. And on June 15th of 2015, I went to the rehab hospital. Uh, and they brought me by ambulance to the rehab hospital. And of course, couldn't see, couldn't move. My head, I had like these, these like involuntary, you know, twitching motions, you know. And I viewed those as positive because I said, ha, ah, see, the brain's trying to make heads or tails of this, but it's not getting the right help to rewire itself. Huh. I said, I can do that. I can do this. I know I can. And then the way I could do – the way I did the thing was like I had to get my eyes working first. The way I did that was I – when they took the trach out, um, I asked the nurse to uh, put Netflix on in front of my face. And the screen displayed something on the screen. I couldn't see it, you know. Right. And I said, just leave it on, let it play a series, and let the series just play the next episode, the next episode, the next episode. Find the biggest series you can find. Right. Okay. <laughs> and it took uh, it took a couple days uh, for me to see a difference, but uh, mm. the distant the difference was amazing. It was night and day, literally. Night became day in a sense. Right. Um, wow. In the interim, I had gone to the eye doctor on site. And he said, I'm sorry, but right now uh, you are, you know, what we would call, you know, legally blind. Um, you know, maybe not profoundly blind because you can see some light and dark. And I could see some light and dark going in. Right. All right. Uh, and he goes, your visual center has been hit pretty heavy and maybe we'll get some of that back. And I said to him, I'm going to get all of it back. That's what I said. I didn't know that for sure, but I really felt I would. I knew that this to me this was just a, an irritant. It was an irritation, a bump in the so road. So you are you in the state you were in, in the states you were in, just like you are now, but inside your mind. You are your own personality. Even though all this shit's going on, uh physically, you're with it. Because you yeah, said you heard them talking. Know. You heard them they talking did. and everything, so you were cognizant in that sense. Yeah, I heard everything they said, and I remembered everything they said. In fact, I repeated their conversations. Wow. And they said somebody had to tell you. We didn't. We we, we didn't you know. You know. We we don't. Uh, you we, you don't know what we said. I could, actually, I do. I heard it all. I'll repeat it. Okay, she said, and then he said. I mean, the neurologist actually said the following words. He said to my family, "He's on this side, and my family's on this side." Okay, this is when I was at, at Mount Sinai in Mount, uh, in Manhattan. He's at this side, and he goes, uh, at best we think he may be a quadriplegic and blind, so you may have to prepare your home uh, for that. And you hear gasp, gasp over there. And it's like, no, I'm, it's not going to happen. I'm inside going, I'm going to be fine, okay? And I was like, you guys, you just don't understand. You just don't understand the brain. So anyway um, – we ended up um, ended up going through this this uh, at the rehab hospital. I took myself um, and, and watched this show. It took two days, and when two days passed, I could see shapes on the screen. Now, why? Because I forced my brain to try and make heads or tails of what was on the screen, and it was very painful to my brain and to me. My eyes hurt. I had migraines. 
I wanted to close my eyes in the worst way. Okay, but I didn't. I forced myself to watch that screen because I knew the screen was sort of here, and I kept my my head there because I couldn't turn my head too much. So wherever right. they put me, that's where I was staying. I just kept my eyes open, and the brain was screaming at me. You know, I need to relax. I need to. I need to just get away from this pain. And I kept thinking, the only way you're going to get by this pain is if you make your brain, you make these pathways work again. Find a way around it is what I kept saying. Yeah, I get the concept. And I, I and I, I believe in that. that. Yeah, and 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 it was only like um, about a week later, I went to the, the eye doctor on site again. I'd see him like once every few days, and I said to him, "Can you put the eye chart up?" Uh, and he goes, "What?" I said, "You please put the eye chart up." Okay, and he put the eye chart up, but really, you know, it's the one that was just the shapes, you know. Right. And it was a distance away, and it's the white square light, and then, of course, the eye chart with the big black letters. And I couldn't see them. But I said, oh, I see the white square. And he goes, you do? How? It's four days. How How are you seeing the white Are you sure? I go, yeah. And so he does some more tests, and he confirms that I can actually see something now. And he goes, well, what are you doing? I said I'm I'm training my brain again. I'm I'm forcing my brain to to find a new path to see again. He goes, ah, I I've never heard of that. I said, yeah, that's why people stay blind. <laughs> in a way, in, that's in logical. I I can see um, some type of metaphysical sense or something. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, to make a long story short, actually, in this, um. And the bottom line was I did the same kind of thing for my hands because whenever somebody touched my hands in any way or my body, it was like being burned alive. I felt burning pain. Wow. So I asked the nurse to put a ball in my hand, and I couldn't move. Okay, I couldn't see it. I sort of see the red because I had gotten my eyes going again right. a little bit. She put the ball in my palm, and it felt like somebody was putting liquid lava right into the center of my palm. It really burned. And I was like, oh. And she says, oh, and she takes it off. I go, no, no, put it back. That pain is so important. That pain is how the brain is going to say, I can't take it anymore. I've got to do something about this. And that's going to make something happen. So, again, long story short, that's how I got my hands back. That's how I got my every, all my movement back was by letting the pain. I, I embraced the pain rather than give me than say, give me a pill to make the pain go away. I embraced right. the pain because that was the only way that my brain was going to rewire. That's so, fascinating, and I think that's, that's good how, advice. That's good advice too. Uh, that's all. And I, I told the doctors, by the way, at the rehab center, when they told me, they said, "Well, you're going to be with us. This is June 15th, around June 16th. The next day, he comes and he says, and I couldn't see him, and then he comes in and he says, "Hello." He goes, "I just want you to know, um, you're going to be with us for like eight to ten weeks, and it's probably going to be a year or more of recovery." Um, and hopefully you'll get back some of your mobility and maybe some sight, you know. And I said to him after they, they removed the trach in the interim, and uh, I said to him, "Well, I have to speak at a conference in September, which is like less than three months away." Yeah, get on it, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> I have, no, I, not him. No, I said right, I right, right. So I've got to be. I'm going to be there. And I heard an audible gasp, like, ah. And then he says to me, comes over closer, he goes, uh, Mr. D'Antonio, do you understand what happened to you? 
And I said, yeah, I had some strokes. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> now all these, all this talking that you hear me saying in response to them, it didn't come out like that when I was talking to them. In my head, I'm saying, yeah, I had some strokes. But what they heard was, yeah, it didn't think because I couldn't talk yet. <clears throat> yeah, you're working on it. You're working on it. People. Right. <clears throat> so, um, so after I could see, then I could get a mirror from the nurse and watch my face and see what happens when I say different words. <clears throat> and then after I could move, I could hold the mirror, okay, and then I could use my other hand to kind of push my my lip around to say, okay, that that's not the right place for the lip when I say this word. And when I would push my lip, the the word would come out right. I said, okay, see, brain, remember that. And the brain would say, as I was imagining it, wow, remember that. I remember that I can do that again. That takes that, balls, man. That takes that's the balls. Recovery. Yes. Yeah, and and. It's helped other people around the country. I've actually talked to other people who've had strokes. And, <clears throat> and mine was from surgery, okay? So uh, not because I, you know, uh, you know anything bad or had a, a problem other than, you know, what I had. Right. Um, from outer space to it, inner space. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, that's right. You know, outer space, inner space, including the inside of the brain. Uh, but... None of this has anything to do with UFOs, and I apologize for that. No, but, no, uh, that's okay, sir. I'm glad you shared that. Uh, you know, that's personal, and uh, I think it's important information, especially with people that are going to face these things in space. They're going to have to learn everything that they can with the limitations, yeah. and they need a mindset like that. I think so. I think that people need to be, <clears throat> you know, need people need to be, you know, ready. You know. And speaking of space, I think I should share my screen and show you some of the stuff that our observatory has done. Yeah, cool. Because I think that's pretty cool, you know. Um, and uh, I'll do it, uh, do this one. All right. And so right now you should be able to see my screen. So when did you, while you're doing that, when did you get all basically perfect again how how long was that process did you obviously make it to oh. that uh conference i did i did my talk at that conference that september i walked in i i Damn. Flew by myself to los angeles from connecticut of course those <clears throat> doctors wanted to know what uh you did they'll make a fortune off you <laughs> well there's there's uh the surgeon basically told me the other day when i was you know, a couple weeks ago actually when i talked to him um he said you know, in his mind, he thinks that I probably uh, was able to connect with places that most people can't in the brain. And I said, well, it's not because they can't. It's they just don't know they can. And right. so I proceeded to tell him what I do. And he's like, you should tell people about this. You know, write a book. I go, no, nah, not a book thing. This is something people have to hear. It could. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I agree there. Now I showed my screen. I don't know uh, if you can see it. It says I see a whole bunch of little uh, thumbnails. Oh, you do? I don't. I don't see what you see yet. Okay, that's fine. On uh, YouTube screen, right? Let me uh, let me just show you what we've done. Uh, This is this is the uh, Arizona Observatory. Can you see that? that... Uh, Yeah, it looks like a shed building, uh, a pole shed building, whatnot. SL. Yeah. What does that say on it? Can you see my cursor? Can you see my cursor as well? Yes. Okay, good. This roof slides off onto this whole assembly over here, leaving the entire 
opening. Uh, oh, right, to right, to the sky when you want it to move. Right. Gotcha. This is a roll-off roof observatory. Uh, this door, I'll show you in a moment. That's a better view. But here's the interior, um, and there's going to be three telescopes in here. And these three telescopes are going to be able to bring the night sky to people in ways that they have never before seen. Okay, This is the Arizona desert. You can't see in front of your face at uh, night. It's right. extremely dark. It's extremely beautiful. Dark sky and I use an ordinary, nice. I use an ordinary, ordinary garage door opener to take the roof off, and it works beautifully. Look, garage rails. Are okay. you familiar with uh, Francis Walsh and his cosmic obsession? Um, I, I've heard of it, but I haven't. I don't have a familiarity with it. I think it. you guys should talk, man. But uh, oh, who knows? Maybe we could have that, a future show if you're willing to come back on at some point, sir. I hope. Maybe, yeah, maybe. As an astronomer, I am up late typically, but um, you know, <laughs> um, when you're up late the night before, the night before, and the night before, you yeah, I understand. <laughs> We're not young anymore. <laughs> Here's the door, by the way. This is the Sky Tour live stream, the STLS, and that is the Orion Nebula. Now, this door was done by a, an Arizona artist mm -hmm. uh, named Tara Dulles, and Tara used thousands of bottle caps. Well, that's ingenious. That's cool. Artists and they're all the right color, not because she painted them, but because right. this is the way they come. And no, she didn't drink tons and tons of Bud Light or anything like <laughs> no, that. No, I'm going to assume that. I mean, right. She collected bottle caps from people. And so that's the Arizona Observatory. Nice. And um, this is uh, a, a beautiful location. And that'll be and ready when? Uh, the building's done now, and right. the equipment's already out there. It arrived in Mesa, Arizona nice. at the uh, storage facility just a few days ago. So Sweet. we're going to be able to uh, go install hopefully in uh, February, and then we'll go live in February uh, out there. Nice. Uh, and then we'll be live out here as well. So we're going to have two observatories now that we, we manage. This is a typical sunset. Yeah, we'll Arizona. definitely have to place a, a link, a uh, video stream link. Maybe we can embed on the show page for people. Uh, is, is it, well, is it continuous feed all night long, nightly type of thing? Well, on clear nights, I will come in and I will start a stream on right. YouTube, on our YouTube channel. And I will run through um, telling people what they're seeing on the screen for the first timers. So right. There's camera control systems over here. There's this, there's that, there's that. <clears throat> and then there's my face. I, I'm in a little window down below. And I move that window around, and I point to things, and I show people things, and I outline things, and I, I'm, I'm there with them. It's all interactive, and uh, people seem to like it. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, this type of instruction is the kind of thing that you do when you have to do things remotely, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, for a period of time, I'm going to be – in Connecticut, doing all this work, I'm never going to be doing this work from inside this observatory. All right, this observatory is a remote facility. <clears throat> if someone goes in there, it's gonna it could mess things up. So, right. and only maintenance uh, phases do you actually go in there. Keep a pit bull but, or two out there with fence around it, but I doubt anyone's just going to walk up. Maybe you never know. It looks so, like you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it is. So here's this is this. This photo, you see the orange sunset here, mm -hmm. and you see the Milky Way in the yep. same shot. Awesome. That's how dark it is out there. 
the sun has just set a little while before this shot was taken. Beautiful. Right? Yeah. And the Milky Way is right here, right after sunset. Yeah. I mean, looking at a beautiful location. This is the Andromeda Galaxy, right? Uh, you know, two million light years away. Now, all these shots you're about to see were taken here in Connecticut. And based on the processing I did, I was able to take data out of this that you can't see. You know, Connecticut, all of Connecticut is uh, under uh, uh, a fairly significant amount of light pollution. Right. But this is what you get if you know what you're looking at and if you can process it. it. Right. So this is a beautiful galaxy. Uh, This is another one right near it in the same space. Uh, This is called the Triangulum Galaxy. It's stunning. It has all these little red areas in it. These are uh, what we call uh, star formation regions. These are stellar nurseries. Have you ever seen Sebastian Voltmere? Um, He'd be someone else you should talk to, Sebastian Voltmere. I've seen him, no. Oh, have you seen his work? Uh, uh, I mean, man, it looks good, too. You guys, man, uh, should connect, but he's over there in Germany uh, most of the time, yeah, but he goes all over I've, Africa and all these I've, other places. He's got some really nice dark skies. Yeah, Here's another beautiful one. This was taken. It's, part, wow. it's up in the northern sky. Uh, this this is a nebula called the Bubble Nebula. There's a star in here called the Wolf Rayet star, and it literally is blowing its outer layers off not in a supernova like stars that obliterate themselves but just a star that's it's expanding and just sloughing off all these outer layers on itself wow. okay and uh, these are very special places they're also very dangerous we would never survive anywhere near this thing okay this is a beautiful nebula we call Casper the Friendly Ghost Nebula <laughs> don't ask me why I don't see Casper anywhere right. <laughs> okay but you know, then uh, this we have clusters like this one. This is a double cluster in in the constellation of Perseus. It's beautiful, beautiful twin dual boxes in the night sky, yeah. absolutely stunning. You know, then this one is the remnant of a star that has basically died. This is called the Dumbbell Nebula, but it's also known as a planetary nebula. You know, this star in the middle here, what you see in that center, that's the the thing that caused it. And what's left of this star, now that it's died, is this white dwarf in the middle. It's so hot, we can see it from a couple thousand light years away. But there's no way to see or tell if it has any planets or had any planets in its beautiful color nebula there? Or is that what makes up the nebula? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing. This this material coming out, you're going to have a healthy supply of dust along with this gas. And it will spark a new planetary formation somewhere down the line. And that's the thing which is really cool, you know. Um, This one here you've seen before. You may not realize it. But if we look in closer here, okay, this. There's that, uh, yeah. You recognize those? Those three little fingers? Yeah. I forget the the name of it, though. Creation. Pillars of Creation, yeah. Yeah, these are the Pillars of Creation. We shot them here uh, as well. And I think that uh, these these pillars are just beautiful. You know, they showcase what we see in the universe, you know. Do they ever uh, appear as changing, or how often would you have to check to see if it moves? Probably a long see, time. See, as a kid, as a kid, I wondered that, and as an adult, I wondered that. I mean, that. sometimes they ask stupid oh, questions, but they can be relevant. <laughs> no, it's not, they're not stupid, okay? Because, like I said, as a kid and as an adult, I've often wondered what – 
know, the time scales over which we'll see changes here because it's all motion, it's all moving. Right. We'd see things flowing and billowing if we could see them. Over Even a long though it's of however time. many million miles away, that's how many years ago. What we're seeing there, or yeah. or is it the deeper you can penetrate, you may be penetrating through time. So that would all depend on perspective. But then again, I'm not that smart to get into that type of discussion. But it's no, fascinating. No, you're saying things that are not. You're saying things that are not wrong at all. You know, you're right. Um, you know, like the, the the Eagle Nebula here, that's what this is called. Um, it's a few thousand light years away. So you're seeing this thing a few thousand years ago because that's how long it took the light to reach us. Right. All right. The universe is a massive time machine. You see the sun eight minutes ago. Okay. Yeah. You see Pluto several hours ago. Okay. You see nebulae uh, on, in general uh, a thousand or more. Uh, years earlier or years ago as they appeared a thousand years ago the Andromeda galaxy I showed you first you saw that two million years ago because that's how far away it is two million light years imagine what it would look like now if there's a that would be fascinating yes exactly what does it look like now that's right you know and that's where I like to go to think about what's it look like now what has this evolved to over the last several thousand years okay uh, here's another one. This beautiful gossamer, beautiful thing. This is called the Veil Nebula. It's a supernova remnant. This this beautiful gossamer shape in the in the cosmos was was born of the most cataclysmic. Yeah, but how do you know? Ever. How do you know? Well, because we can check its velocity. We see how fast it's moving out. We know where it's coming from. We see the round location in space this is a small section of an overall uh, you know circular object in space and this is one small piece moving up to the upper left wow and there's pieces moving to the lower right pieces up here and this is the remains of a single star that obliterated itself in a supernova wow and it's amazing how much that gas gets spread out to the interstellar medium and that gas makes its way elsewhere and sparks a new star formation. And it makes you wonder you know? how far all those stars are behind it. Yeah, well, they could be in front of it, too. Well, yeah, that's true, too. That's yeah, right. You do see in, them in, in front this, of it. In the, case of this, in the case of this object, they're actually not that uh, many of these stars are behind it because these, this thing is actually only a, uh, maybe, I think, 1,600 light years away. Wow. So some of the stars will be in front, but many are behind it. Okay, um, this is another remnant of a, a dead star. You know, but wouldn't that be like millions shapes, of miles colors. long then? What's that? Millions of billions of miles long then, compared to the star positions and all that. Knowing oh, that yeah, stars yeah. are big, and that thing yeah, is huge. Is, How many miles would that be? Light years in. This is light years in length. And yes, know? yes, light years in length. That huge. And a single light year is, is uh, six trillion miles. Wow. So it's many, many light years in length. You know, this guy here is about two light years in diameter. All right. So it literally takes the light two years to go from here to here. And I wonder That's what great. type of life potentialities, again, if they had planets, they got whoopty dude, obviously. These big yeah. old clouds, as it was, going light years. Everything that was on them, its essence, its cellular structures, DNA, uh, right? Yeah, I mean, Potentially whatever there was, I mean, we 
we actually found planets that are surrounding stars that have actually gone supernova. And we find that there are planets that are still in existence around these supernovae uh, where they occurred. That'd be cool uh, to see. Planets around things called pulsars. The pulsar is the remnant of a star sometimes that explodes. And, and they're like lighthouse beacons that swing around with this hot radiation. Um, and they, they move very fast. Well, we have seen planets around pulsars, which indicates they were there before the star blew up. So could there have been life there? Maybe so. You know, maybe so. This is a well, beautiful... Well, to me, it's obvious lizard. we're in the universe. Life is universal. Dr. Gil Levin uh, also b- firmly believes that, and so do many others. And it makes sense because, you know, again, panspermia issues and stuff like that or, you know, dormant or well, some say f- some make could also obviously be fossilized or just dormant enough and wind up in the right spot and... I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, but then again, I don't know. But then now when we talk about intelligence, which I know is uh, subjects you love focusing on too, the possibilities thereof, um, I want to read your book there. Uh, there's probably a lot of my answers I'm coming, thinking of in my head are probably in it. <laughs> but uh, Well, you know, it's written for all groups. You know, it's, it's written at a level that... Um, everyone can understand, you know. basically. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's one of the things that I like to do is to reach everybody because I think science is for everybody, yeah. you know. And so being that I think science is for everybody, it means you've got to talk to people in a way that they can understand things. I mean, how could you possibly understand relativity by reading Einstein's book, you know, and right. books by people that, you know, talk about Einstein's theory of relativity? Right. I mean, May as well be what's Chinese. What's general relativity? What the heck is relative about anything? I don't get it, you know. And and right. that's that's where that's where people like me come in, I think, because understanding these things, we're the ones that pulled our hair out. Okay, I still have hair, but uh-huh. we're the ones that pulled our hair out learning it. So why can't we uh, put these things into a context that now makes sense for other people? And it and may that's be, what, the, and it may be the key. That there was someone could then contribute something they uh, didn't know that they had to contribute to open and bring that out of them, of their brain, like your moment they were nine years old and such, and how That's that right. inspired you. I mean, so I definitely see the value in that. Uh, yeah, wow, that's pretty cool. Look at that thing. Yeah, wow. this is the uh, Iris Nebula you're looking at here. It, looks yeah, it does like a... look like an eye a little, don't it? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool, you know. Um, but you can see the three-dimensionality of space here. You see there's stuff on the left here. You don't see the stars behind it. Right. Something's blocking it. You don't see stars here. You can see a fuzziness here, but you don't see those faint stars that you should see here. Where are they? Well, they're behind it. This is a dark dust uh, location. There's a lot of dust here. And, and that dust becomes planets eventually, potentially. All right? and could become life eventually. And and that's where we're from. And that's why Carl Sagan famously said, you know, we are made of star stuff. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that was his famous quote. And we are made of star stuff. Yep, you know, yep, the stars yep. make the elements in our periodic table. Um, but, um, you know, and, and all the atoms we see in our periodic table were made in um, a star's heart at one point. You know, but you know, I always say you know you should you should never trust an atom. You know why? Why? They make up everything. 
<laughs> good one. <laughs> they make up everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the reason I say that is because that's the actual true. shirt I'm wearing today. It says, don't trust Adams. They make up everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know a few Adams, too, that that could relatively answer uh, yeah. for as well. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, so this is Lagoon Nebula. This is a very popular So these popular are a lot of the type mysteries. of things we have to look forward to once we uh, get onto this website when all this is up and kicking for people. That's There's right. Like Skytour Livestream is going to be up and running, man. And, and well, Skytour Livestream West is going to be up and running. Skytour Livestream East has has been up and running for like three years now. Um, we have like uh, you know, no, or, uh, just under five thousand subscribers now. You know, all right? So it's really. Good. So yeah. how um this, oh, the numbers will grow, yeah. especially as uh, the times and which I was hoping we get into some discussions of, especially these disclosures. But before we go there, um, how close can you get to Mars and, and study Mars? Can we have like a Mars night or something? Or do you have something like that uh, for your show and program there for people to see? Well, Will it be a we, how we close could you that. get? Yeah, we, we did that several times, actually, probably over the course of five nights when Mars was you know, close to where right. we could actually see detail on the surface from here. And we saw in our Mars, you know, Mars is tiny no matter what you do, you know. Um, and we saw that we could see the polar cap. We could see detail on the surface. Uh, and it was actually So pretty you don't impressive. have access to anything that could get close to it? No, no, I, I, don't, I don't have access to spacecraft. <laughs> uh, but if I did, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar well, I would well, be Hubble looking did at it. that. Hubble did it. Well, I know it was on his close approaches, but uh, Hubble yeah. still got And even of the moon. How they, yeah. You know, so yeah. that's why I ask. You know. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a silly question. I mean, it's, it's a very good question, you know. But uh, so that's, that's uh, effectively... Uh, what we're doing and I think that one of the things that I think is really important is that we recognize that um, the world of astronomy is something that uh, is often overlooked because people have to look up to see it yeah and, and, and what, most people just train people in life to keep looking down to keep them down and to go on their program curriculums when wow look up it's such amazing things it's and, I don't know at least to me live in the cities when you live in a city, you don't look up to see any stars. You see like that that right. that kind of crazy light. You know? Yeah, light pollution, indeed. Yep. So all right. Yep. So now this is these obviously passions that are all connected uh, through obviously through your uh, researches of space that you led since a kid. Now, at what point, MUFON <laughs> and and UFOs slash UAPs and how that integrate into your life? If, hopefully, that's not a stupid question. I'm trying to know more about you and the listeners. Again, hopefully for future shows, if that's okay. But um, well, it is. I mean, I, I, I don't unfortunately have all night. I'm going to have to go soon. But um, the the thing about Mufon was that um, I did an analysis for them because I had been doing analysis for years before I ever did it for Mufon. Right. But I was in Mufon. Um, I joined MUFON when I was 11 years old, hmm. um, two years after it started, and uh, I've been in it ever since. And 
because um, the thought and concept of extraterrestrial life always intrigued me. And when I went to get my degree in astronomy, my thought was I am going to learn how uh, I'm going to learn about extraterrestrial life. Uh, and I'm going to spend my life figuring out how life happened here on our planet because we have to understand how it happened here before we can understand how it happened there or there. Right. Or there. You know, we need to know all about how it happened here. Um, yeah. I'm also we, trying to figure out how it happened on Mars, but I'm crazy, sir. <laughs> but no, uh, actually, I think there is still life on Mars. I think that the life is, uh, at the very least, uh, uh, under the, probably under the South Pole because uh, we discovered there is actually a large body of liquid water under the South Pole of Mars. Well, what else, could it, what else could it be? Have you ever read a book by William K. Hartman called Mars Underground? You might have heard of it. I've heard of it, yeah. And and this this was a, a result of a study done uh, with radar that actually right. showed there's this large body of water under Mars. Now, that makes sense because at a certain depth, the weight of those sediments okay, on potential ice under there is going to liquefy the ice. Um and because of the nature of that water, uh, it's a possibility you can't. No one can deny actually that maybe life there's not, microbial life thriving now. If it's so had uh, liquid, right? Methane. We also had a methane bloom on the Martian surface. Uh, yeah. Um, several times the amount that would be expected, and that methane bloom uh, could have been. Uh, from microbes. Now they're yeah. saying, well, it could well, have don't, been. Don't forget, also periodically. I mean, periodically consistent, uh, giving its little belches there, like something's going on. Listeners to this show could appreciate. Uh, you know, we have a term for the, what's going on under Mars: subsurface illegals. Where now we needed many more boots to put American boots on the face of Mars. <laughs> and t- remember that bringing in the space force. By the presidents there, <laughs> you know, because they didn't mention the Chinese and it was touting the Space Force that we were going to put American boots. Everyone's clapping. I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, I can look at this. This guy say we're going to go put American boots on the face of Mars. American boots terminology being taught in a speech for the Space Force military. So the military boots they ain't bringing flags and flowers. They're bringing them sixties. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this crap up, sir. And But it's funny. Either way it goes, it's just as fascinating, and it should inspire all the more people to actually want to be part of it. To, 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 if you can't see it, maybe actually go there, you know, or at least to get to see it as many possibilities. Like you had to learn in all the various datas and even creating 3D models. Wouldn't it be great to actually go there? And you already have a model. You know where to go, what to, where to step almost practically. Oh, you know what, though? I'll, 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 let, I'll let those intrepid explorers go to Mars. Um, <laughs> and, and- and for now, okay, the Perseverance Mars rover that's going there is going to do, <clears throat> going to do uh, a lot of the work for us as well. Um, one of the experiments that it has on it, which you may know about, is uh, MOXIE. Right. That's the Mars Oxygen Institute uh, experiment. Uh, and what that does is it takes the carbon dioxide in the air, <clears throat> uses two carbon dioxide molecules, forms a little CO, carbon monoxide, but then out of it comes O2. 
What's kind of relevant uh, for oh. when we started this conversation in a way. That's interesting. Well, so something you're familiar yeah. with. Yeah, it's it's what we actually breathe, right? O2. Right. Diatomic. You know, two oxygen atoms bound together. And so um, that experiment, if it is, is working, it's going to just be a, a car battery sized experiment. You know, they're going to uh, scale it up and make large scale oxygen production. Because when you go to Mars as an astronaut, you can't bring your oxygen with you. You've got to make it when you're there. Right. Oh, you can't bring your water with you. You got to make it when you're there. Yeah. You know, you can't do any of that stuff. You have to be self-sufficient. You have to make your own food. Or you know, land enough big effing rockets ahead of time. <laughs> what? Or unless land a lot of uh, big effing rockets ahead of time, according to Elon Musk proposals and plans to at least sustain them and bring the tools uh, long enough to start production because that's got to be made. And then the living facilities has got to, you know, have the duct works. I mean, this creates not just for astronauts, but for plumbers, for, uh, you know, HVAC people. Um, This opens up everything. It goes way beyond that. We have to have have the infrastructure (laughs) ready and waiting for humans to arrive at Mars. Right. They have to walk into a facility that already has the atmosphere. They have to walk into a facility that already has protection from the UV rays of the sun, which has sterilized the Mars surface over all the many years. Right. Do you think we'd be able to send automated uh, machinery and things to do this, to connect to each other robotically so when we do go... Like you said, at least we have a building, you know, that's functional that you could breathe in uh, as a safety zone more than important than anything, right? And, no, uh, we have to do that. I mean, we have to. Right. You know? Huh. Yeah, we have to do that. You know, so anyway, that, that's that's kind of what has to happen, you know? Um, <clears throat> and I'm actually out of time with you. I apologize. I don't, I don't have a lot more time because I have uh, things to do. Um, just a few hours from now, and I have to get some sleep. All right, no problem. Uh, Can I just uh, ask you real quick, uh, what what is your thoughts and opinions regarding the uh, latest disclosures and how it was slipped into the bill, wink, wink? I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Was it slipped or purposely given for 180 days, which on the time frame of now, so probably around June at some time, uh, they're supposed to disclose about UFOs? Um, every single, uh, time there's an election of any kind, they're always promising that. And yeah, but it's actually written in the bill in the Chinese Kung flu stimulus bill, the 1.3 trillion, obviously some to go to other countries that shouldn't be going nowhere, but uh, there are people, but besides that, notice how the UFO prospect was thrown in. Isn't that weird into a bill like that? You know, or what are your opinions? It's not the first time. It's not the first time that that's been done. You know, there have been promises made, promises broken when it comes to UFO disclosure. Um, It makes sense because, first of all, I had an experience when I was, uh, you know, as I said before, I've worked a lot for the Navy, including one time uh, I actually did some work and they said, hey, you want to go out on a submarine? I said, sure. Went out on a submarine and much longer story, very short. Um, there was a USO that was seen, 
And the uh, person who saw the USO on the submarine was the sonar man. And he said um, to the executive officer, this thing was moving several hundred knots, sir. Wow. And that was totally believable by me. Um, I didn't see the trace because I couldn't read it. It was a, you know, static on a green static on a screen to me. But um, fast forward a few years, I had to do a job for the Joint Chiefs down in Washington. And I sat and I asked one of the chiefs to his face, what can you tell me about this program for looking at these uh, or capturing these objects or at least cataloging? Um, and they were called fast movers uh, on this boat. Huh. Um, and he said, he could have said, I don't know anything about that or what's that. And he didn't. He said, and I quote, I can't talk about that, Mark. I'm sorry. Hmm. Now, that is that is a very strong statement. And uh, I've been living with that statement for years. Okay. And this is the Joint Chiefs now. Okay. You know, <laughs> the Joint Chiefs in All Washington. Right. This is a very powerful statement. and And then... Many years later, the Nimitz UFO incident occurs, and that comes out into the open, you know. And the sailors and the airmen and the people that in, in, that participated and saw all these things, now they're feeling free to talk about it. And other people are talking about unknown submerged objects as well now. Um, I've said all along, and this is the last thing I can say before I have to go, um, if alien life is here, then they're going to go where we are not. And where aren't we? We are not in our deep ocean. When we go into the deep ocean, we just drop it in an elevator like a, a little you know, sub. We go down, we come up. Right. And it's very obvious because we have a big show of ships on the surface that are tending to this thing going down and up. We're like elevators going down and up. So that's something that can be avoided very quickly and very easily. So that's... That's something that we're trying to uh, uh, or, know, figure out, right? Or even deep inside the Earth. I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I don't buy the inner Earth stuff. I think that's just you know, you don't need to go that far. Frankly, um, we we know that the ocean is literally largely unexplored. Yes, we have bathymetry, you know, bottom detail for a great deal of the ocean floor. Right. But we only see the finished product of all that stuff put together. We don't see what happened in the intervening many years that passed between the last time somebody went over that particular stretch of the ocean. So it's not like, you know, except for for shipping lanes, there's areas of the ocean that have been only seen one time in human history. Right. And it goes on from there. So anyway, so if they're here, they go where we are not. And, and where we are not is in the deep ocean. They don't have to hide in the moon to try and look at us from there. They can just go in our oceans. I agree. It brings yeah. it much closer, and people do see a lot of these crafts. Even recently, uh, what, in Hawaii? Uh, do you have an opinion on that before you jet? I'm sure that has been uh, in your guys' interest lately. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of cases that 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 show interest, you know, and... Um, Absolutely. But you have to be careful to weed out the 
people that want to get YouTube hits, for instance, from those that are right. really genuinely interested in getting to the bottom of it. Because the ones that want YouTube hits will try and take it, and then they kind of stretch the facts and add their own. That's and, why the data is the most important. The better the data. Yeah, that's right. And the, and the sooner the people realize that, then the more discerning they'll be because what's missing right now is a level of critical thinking that's required for this kind of thing. Um, and that's why being part of a science, technology, engineering, and math uh, uh, consortium is very important because we have to make sure that we don't lose that edge. We have to make sure that the kids and the adults alike remain as critical thinkers to find their way through this morass of information that is oftentimes wrong, exaggerated, and uh, outright And if they do find something that they know what they're doing enough with the good enough data to put forth what could obviously give us the answers that we've all been searching for, and that's a positive thing. You know, I mean, if not, if there's nothing to find, why look? You can't find some if you're not looking. And under the oceans, yeah, I mean, you mentioned yourself, depending on if and when any intelligences came here and utilized the oceans, if they were here for a while, well, a lot of whoop de doos happen on Earth, and, you know, uh, water and the sand movements may, might cover up bases or even ancient structures that it could have become flooded. Uh, it, that could go there, too, for archaeology. Archaeology purposes, uh, yeah, right? Perhaps. Yeah, huh. but uh, I want to thank you, by the way, for having me on. This is very nice. I I, I have to go, but um, I uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, thank you, you for know, your time, I, sir. Hope your channel grows. Yeah, I really do. You know, and maybe maybe um, if people hear this, they'll uh, decide they want to come and subscribe to you and hang out with you for a little longer. Yeah, right? same thing, of course, for your show, which is you know always great, man. Um, I definitely thank you for being on. Hopefully we could do this again in the future. And, uh, you know, or if you want to come on, uh, spur the moment, if you have something important you want to get out. I know you have your own show, but it's always nice on other venues as well. You're more than welcome, sir. Thank you so much. It was enjoyable, and I'm sure you have great people who listen to you. Yes, ma'am. So uh, yes, you guys all have a good night, and thank you for having me on your show. All right, you too. Uh, Gary, thank you very much, and, and to your uh the mean green, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah. I'll definitely, I think, I want to do contact you time to time. I'm serious about that model I want and a couple others. So uh, then maybe we could talk more about what that's going to take, uh, and I could start trying to acquire what needs before. How much do you need down in order to start it? Uh, I won't know until I know what how right, we're going to make it. Gotcha. All right, sir. Um, again, thank you for being on. It was great meeting you, and I look forward to the future with you, sir, in the Martian Revelation. Okay, guys. Hey, thank you very much, and see you later, Mean Green. Thank you for your help beforehand getting on. Um, and thanks, Gary. I'll talk to you again. Yes, sir. You have a good night. So long, All folks. Right. All right, bye. So there you go, Mr. Mark D'Antonio. Interesting individual there. You know, getting all deep and personal with issues, that's cool, you know, and uh, he didn't have to apologize about that. I mean, that's that's interesting to know, and he's very correct there regards to the, to the brain and what can be done. He, Like he said, how to find ways to rewire itself. 
or to work around the problem. I, I can see that. What's incredible is the cognizance he had of himself in that situation where physically, obviously, you know, they're, they're probably ranking him out or, you know, who knows? Anything to be going on. You're paraplegic. You know, you need help for everything. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to get rude. I mean, I, I wish that upon nobody. That's like a living hell, you know, but he turned it into something else. To, obviously, it worked. Blew his doctors away. Of course they want to know how he did it. <laughs> you know, they'll get rich off him. You know, how that shit works. But just think of the possibilities, though. I would have definitely liked to get more into UFOs, UAPs, but probably next time. This was a good icebreaker show, I think, at least for this show. So hopefully your listeners feel uh, feel the same way. Uh, he's got a lot of subjects behind him, so that would obviously take the course over several different shows, I'm sure. So that'll be worthwhile. But I'm going to crash and get some deep. But thank you, everyone, for sticking around. And uh, again. Thank you, Gary. Yeah, hey, man. I love you, brother, man. Party with me, Jacob. Party with me, man. Get Make a 
Show.